Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have Dr. Alex Plato joining us from Oh, hi. Oh, oh. <laughs> and we got Curtis from Texas and me here in California freezing. Thank you for joining oh, yeah. us, Dr. Yeah, Alex freeze. Plato. Glad to be here. Glad to see you, fellas. Yeah, great to see you, Alex. Thanks for making the time to be on with us. Of course, my pleasure. Maybe we can do another one. We'll see how this one goes. That'd be wonderful. Oh, of course. Are you kidding me? First of all, your name is Alex Plato, right? Yes, indeed. So, you know. I get a lot of mileage out of that. I know, I know. (laughs) It's it's like, well, I mean. He was your ancestor, right? I changed my name, my original name was uh alexander the great Uh that's my that's on my birth certificate right and well that's my first name and then my last name is socrates so i went through life you know didn't make any sense chronologically it just didn't make any sense at all but i changed my name as soon as i could when i was uh, 17 uh, Mm -hmm. emancipated minor changed Uh my name right away and um you know, and then I became a philosophy teacher and I was like, I should have kept that name, you know, cause it's kind of boring the name I chose. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> let me share a warm anecdote before this, uh, just devolves into some kind of, um, hangout <laughs> session. Yeah. Um, of Alex, how I met Alex. Uh, I actually can't quite recall when I met Alex exactly the first time, but I do remember an anecdote where we were at the um, American Academy of Religion. I think it was 2004 in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And Atlanta, as you guys know, is in Georgia. Um, it's it's Atlanta is there in Atlanta. It's actually in the city. City is in the city. And we were at the uh, the fancy hotel. I'm trying to think of who was sharing the room with us. I want to say it was John Kwok. I, I would think that would right? be yes. Yeah. Okay. But I can't remember clearly. Um, so it was me, John, and Alex crashed on the floor in our room. And, uh, you know, it was like a big philosophy, just love fest, basically. And I think SBL was there, Society of Biblical Literature. Yep. I remember there was a knockdown drag out debate between N.T. Wright and uh, Jean Dom Croissant, as I call yes. him, Jean yes. Dominic Croissant. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, and Alex was just the most eager person in the world to learn and talk. Yes, and and discuss things anytime, any hour of the night. If I would have woken up Alex and said, "Hey, dude, I Aristotle versus Plato, <laughs> what That's is good. going on with this?" Yeah, he probably would have just been like, "Okay, hold on." Yeah. And, you know, but that's like, how I remember like, Alex was just an like eager, eager guy. That's right. It's philosophy is like spiritual caffeine. Absolutely. So. And then me- we had a class together at Biola on evidentialism, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, that seminar on evidentialism was what got me thinking deeper about evidence. And, and I don't think I've ever lost that have you lost that evidentialism take i haven't lost the importance of evidence um 
I think that the the kind of epistemological um, the sort of epistemological neighborhood I'm in is compatible and consistent, but not exactly the same. Um, but definitely compatible, consistent is what I would say. <laughs> is that does that neighborhood have a name? I would say I'm very sympathetic with some of Wittgenstein's, the later Wittgenstein, as coming through Anscombe, which I I studied Anscombe in my dissertation work. Who's, um, who's Anscombe? Elizabeth Anscombe, right? Was it's a weird a, name for a guy. Yeah, it's a <laughs> her, her nickname. Wittgenstein oh, was a girl. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Well, that's right. I, it's confusing because Wittgenstein's nickname for Anscombe was Old Man. Wait, what, what years did she live? <laughs> so she lived from 1919 to 2001. A British. How did she get a job before women's liberation? I don't get it. it I, that's, it's difficult. Yeah. So she had to go against the grain, right? In many okay. ways. She went against the grain. And here's, here's a couple of ways she went against the grain. She was very eccentric, very interesting person. Philosopher was, going against the grain? Let, let's, uh, let's spell that name for everybody who's following and wants to learn. Elizabeth mm -hmm. Anscombe, Elizabeth spelled the normal way. Yep. And then Anscombe is A-N-S-C-O-M-B-E. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And and her husband was Peter, Peter Geach. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And uh, and she was a she was a Catholic British person, which already makes her not fitting. But she already didn't fit in the Oxford Cambridge scene in like basically the 50s to the 90s right? Because she was a theist and a Christian. So she was like a black sheep, you know, in multiple ways. And uh, I remember I, I, Richard Swinburne was out here and we of course know him. I'm sure you can do an excellent impersonation, Lucas. Um, and Swinburne was, if out I ever here. want to have him as a guest, I probably should hold off on that. Yeah. It would be endearing though, because we all love Richard Swinburne. And yeah, he, had him he for, says, I had no, him. I'm doing it. Yeah. I had a member. I don't know if you were in that class, Maybe you were Curtis. I can't remember. Philosophy of religion. Yes. Were, were you in that class? Yes. Yes. For three weeks, he came and he was our our lecturer for three weeks. That's right. And we got to experience the 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 wonder and and personality of Richard Swinburne. It was great. But it my was point was my point was he he I asked him when he came out here to to Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio, um, if he knew Elizabeth Anscombe and Peter Geach, and he said he said, oh yeah. And then he said, a prickly lot. <laughs> and then he told me this story, which was, which was pretty fascinating. He said, you know, I used to be friends with them, but I wrote the book Evolution of the Soul, right? Um, and Peter Geach read it. And then he, Peter Geach wrote a letter to Richard Swinburne. This is what Richard Swinburne was telling me. And um, the letter said something like, dear Richard, I've read your book. Um, you've ceased to be orthodox. Sincerely, Peter Geek, or something like that. <laughs> so, did, Peter did, Geek, uh, did Richard? Uh, this is Richard Swinburne. For those of you who don't know, this is this is the Oxford. He's retired now, but he yeah. was the Oxford professor of the philosophy of the Christian religion, which is the uh, whole Nolith. title. The Nolith professor, yeah. Nolith the, professor. There you go. Yes, that's right. The Nolith professor of the Christian religion, or something like that, at Oxford. It was at Oxnard Community College. I think it's oh, Oxnard Real College. Yeah. Oc yeah. Oxford. Okay. Oxford, where the, where the ox go across a certain waterway, Oxford. Yeah. And that's in um, 
It's across a pond. British? Something. something. Yeah. I think it's in England. <laughs> I think so. I think you're right about that. I'm, I'm, I would say I'm certain of that. And I'm not afraid of saying that. <laughs> so he came out to California to teach us. And we had a grand old time with uh, Sir Richard. Uh, well, actually, he's not a sir, I guess, but. Just uh, professor. Professor. Yeah. Is, and he and he I remember he schooled us on the difference between professor and doctor one time. Totally. Yeah. He didn't have a doctor degree, but he was a full professor in yeah. at Oxford. And there was a difference, apparently. And apparently being a professor more eminent. at Oxford was far right. more impressive than being a doctor. Indeed. That's right. Um, because uh, there's these ranks of teachers, I guess, at mm-hmm. Oxford tutor, I think lecturer. I don't exactly know, but professor is the pinnacle. And he had not only professor, but he was a named professor. In other words, it was named after some person, Nolith, whoever that is. Yeah. um, I remember here's an anecdote about him that connects me back to Anscombe and epistemology, right? So I'm going to bring all the threads together. Yeah. So I remember when the first lecture that Swinburne gave us in that class, I don't know if you remember this, Curtis, Mm. he said... um, he said, you know what, um, we have to follow the evidence wherever it leads, because what we want is the truth, right? And the evidence is the way that we're led to the truth. There's no other way. We don't have some luminous, right, God's eye point of view on the truth, right? And so we have to follow the evidence no matter what. And he said, if the evidence leads us to reject theism, then we must reject theism. And if the evidence leads us to accept theism, we must accept theism, right? So he was absolutely committed to that quest for the truth. And said, no matter what I say, this is what we're doing. We have to be committed to this, this number one value and epistemology of affirming the truth. Of course, the other one is avoiding falsehood and doing those things together. And, the, and, and you're yeah. saying theism, yes. for those of you who maybe think he's saying something close to atheism, but you can't quite tell what it is. Theism is just the view that God exists. It, you, usually, sometimes people say monotheism, but... <laughs> Theism is a shorthand for just talking about the existence of creator God Yeah. without saying anything else about anything, any doctrines or anything like that. I would actually make it a little bit broader. And I would say not necessarily a creator God, because I would say Aristotle was a theist, right? He didn't believe in that God created, but he believed God sustained this eternal universe without which there would be no physical universe. So he was a theist, right? Um, so I would add him to the list, of course, you know, lots of famous philosophers throughout history of various times and places and even religions are theists, right? In this broad sense of believing there is this transcendent being that is responsible for the existence of everything um, and is a mind-like entity, right? As we know from one of our favorite philosophers, um, the recent um, Dallas Willard, his famous three-stage argument for the existence of God, which... I encountered there and I still use that in my classes. That's awesome. Yeah. He makes, he makes the point that they're just, that that's almost like a philosophical consensus. I could say that there is a divine mind and transcendent being, at least in Western philosophy, not to exclude Eastern. So yeah. So theism. So he said, if we follow the evidence to that, we've got to accept it. Right. doesn't matter if it makes us feel uncomfortable because we now live in an ontologically haunted universe. Um, as many atheists would feel if they were to suddenly realize that the evidence indicates there is a transcendent being. Um, 
I think some people are watching this maybe years in the future because it's going into an archive. It's yeah. going to be available. And they hear ontologically haunted universe and they're like, hold on, all of a sudden we're talking about Halloween or something. I missed that. I don't know what that means. Um, but that's good. You know what I like about this interview so far is Plato is going to, don't be intimidated by him. He's going to stretch your mind. He's going to take you just beyond where you think you can go. And, but he'll bring he'll it back smile. Down. He'll smile along the way. What he, what he just said was the importance of this guy, Swinburne. This guy was from Oxford. He came out to California to teach us. He said, evidence is so important. It's the only way you get to truth and truth is what we need. You have to follow the evidence wherever it leads. That's what he said. Bingo. And that mind blown, you know, wait, hold on. Evidence. Yeah. What, I mean, what, what, this, what counts as evidence? What well, kind of things of, are evidence? Yeah. Think about it this way. If you don't follow the evidence, well, then what are you following? You're following somebody that you heard. You're following sound bites, cliches, right? You're following your feelings and your emotions only not that those are irrelevant, but those aren't reliable like evidence. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to tweet that quote out that just that soundbite right right there (laughs) go for it no i'm just kidding um if i if i had it together i would be doing that kind of stuff but we're bootstrapping it as you can tell i mean like stanley over there is holding the camera he's homeless like i am um no that has that's not real beer that that can has been there for a while i've seen it sorry i'm just don't drink out of that oh please oh there's a cigarette butt in it okay well anyway we're freezing up here but yeah we're bootstrapping this so that's such a good thing you just said al yeah about what are you going to follow like you know with the, the, so what counts as evidence i mean what, I think what sorts I would, of things can we use as evidence i think i mean there's that that notion of course we see that pop up in all the movies about court cases and maybe we've even been in a real court case where there's evidence presented Right. And of course, that's kind of various. I mean, it might, might be physical objects, right, in a certain context. It might be circumstances, right? And so I think broadly what we might try to use to capture the idea of evidence is we can give reasons to believe something. And when we appeal to the reasons to believe it, right, we're appealing to the evidence that those reasons express or are about or something like that. I would say it that way. Um, there's is lots that of- how you would define evidence? How do you define I, it? I define it as reasons, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, defining things is kind of, a. uh, yeah, define, defining things. Yeah. Define, define. There are lots of, I got a real problem uh, with defining, defining things here, guys. No, this is important. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, this is important because as a philosopher, right, we get into lots of debates about things, right. And of course, in politics, you get into lots of debates about things. And I am a, an advisor of a, of a club here at Franciscan University that puts on parliamentary style debates. And so they have a motion, right? And then people come out, you know, come affirming it or, you know, denying it. And of course, what the motion means is always part of the debate. And so sometimes people think definitions sort of just um, conclude things, right? <laughs> Whereas really definitions can just yeah. start things and we can stipulate definitions. And if we're stipulating definitions, it can be whatever we just allow the guy to talk and stipulate it and then follow what he says by that term. And you can just stipulate a different one if you want. Right. But of course, the word definition sometimes means like 
you've got to the essence of whatever it is. And as if you finish thinking about it, it's the exact opposite of stipulating. It's like, you've talked about this for a long time. You've read about it. You've debated about it. And now you've concluded that this is what this is. Right. So, I mean, I think that definition is a, is a tricky term. Because uh, it might sense. mean something yeah. more, I mean, whatever lexical stipulation you want to give. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, well, there's something of a. I don't have an essence of, of, of uh, evidence. I don't have an essence for you. Yeah. There's something of a, of a problem of, of criterion with grading definition. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. So let me, let me draw one thing back to the, the Anscombe point, just because Anscombe and Geach are like heroes of mine. Um, and, and so she, so Peter Geach wrote that letter to Swing. I, I don't think you've mentioned that Geach was a philosopher as well. Yes. He was so a, they were a married a philosophy couple, which is, I, I, I only have reason I mentioned that is it's, it's a little odd. You wouldn't normally think of a philosopher couple. It's, it seems like it's a little bit odd. I mean, they do exist, but this is a famous example of, of a philosopher couple. Yeah, exactly. And so, and it's confusing because Anscombe did not take Geach's surname um, when, she, when they got married. Um, even though in, in many other respects, she was very much a traditionalist, like traditional morality, traditional Catholicism. Do you think she voted for Margaret Thatcher? Um, no, I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Um, she was a socialist? She definitely wasn't a socialist. Praise God. Yeah. So, so, so it gets complicated. That's one of the complicated things. So, Ouch. So, yeah. <laughs> So, so this is something we'll have to talk about at some point, but at, at, in 2009, I became a Catholic. Um, and when, when you say Catholic, you mean Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic, yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, Alex, Catholics. I'm yeah. so glad you pivoted there so naturally because I was totally going to go to, my next question was, tell us how you got interested in philosophy, but you, you take the Catholic thing first if you want. I think it's helpful yeah, for people just, to start at the beginning. Like, how did you even get into philosophy? What is philosophy? Like, what do you do? You're over there, like in that office. What are you doing? I like but, chronology. Let's go there. We'll get to the Catholic thing eventually. And Scum, of course, was a Catholic. And so when you say socialism and capitalism, sort of people that read yeah. social teaching, it kind of like, they're going to be disappointed with these terms in a certain way, right? Even if you might say they're political allies in this culture, right? Um, yep. I got so, it. So it, politics is the gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, um, start at conception because you're a Catholic, right? So how were you conceived? What happened? How did so that happen? I'm not exactly sure because I have a twin brother and, uh, and we, that's right. Brother, I forgot yes. about that. Well, how many twin brothers do you have? Um, I have exactly one twin brother, um, okay. unless right. you change the meaning of brother. And we talk about other people that are twins that are fellow Christians. So then they would be my twin brothers. We'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Um, it's my joke whenever I meet a twin in my class. So they say they're twins. I'm like, hey, we're twins. Not wow, that's other. that's so much deeper than Great. my jokes. My my joke is when I meet a twin, I say, Now, how many twins do you have exactly? That's a good one too. Or I love and I love just going up to families and going, Now, how do you guys all know each other? And they're looking like, you know, okay, this is my dad. And how and so how did you guys meet? Where did you guys meet? just stupid stuff like that it's just you know yeah. my name's mike anderson you know oh mike what's your first name 
How do you spell that? <laughs> the, the normal way? Is it with a Z? Anyway, okay, sorry. I know I'm being stupid, but I think I think philosophers that can tell jokes are better philosophers than philosophers that can't tell jokes. True. That's yeah. true. I will take that. I will infer from that something and I will take it <laughs> to my camp, my homeless camp back here. So, um, so I don't know exactly whether we are identical twins or fraternal twins, or I've heard of a, of a theoretical kind called semi-identical twins. Um, so I don't know what I am. So I don't know exactly when I began, but I know for sure that when there was a conceptus there, there was a human life that it would be pedantic to say the destruction of would not be murder. Uh, so at any rate, I don't know exactly how it works. Twinning. Do you, um, do you guys identify as identical twins or identify yeah, different? Yeah, we identify as semi-identical. Okay. okay. Um, so my mother thought we were fraternal because there were two placentas, but apparently that is not a um, sufficient condition, right? For being non-identical. You can be identical twins and have two placentas. She thought if you had two placentas, you couldn't be identical. Oh, interesting. So anyways, um, I, I disclaim any authority on any of these biological facts. I don't know about what's going on in the here and I only know about general things like truth and justice and stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so well, anyway, do you have any I other have, siblings? I have an older sister, an older sister. Um, each of them is married, has multiple kids. Um, so I've got, you know, quite a few nieces and nephews. I have three kids of my own, um, ages seven, six, and four. Um, That's a handful. Yeah. And so we have a great time. Life is great. Um, super blessed. And um, I recommend the arrangement to people. Um, Agreed. Yeah. And you're married, right? Indeed. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> we want to get that in there somewhere since you're talking about having kids. The best arrangement for children. Yes. Um, I will assert that very strongly. Um, How long have you been married? I have been married since, uh, let's see here, 2013. Very cool. So, and then how old is your oldest kid? Seven. Okay. <laughs> doing, doing the math here. All right. Let's see here. <laughs> 2000. Okay. Here we go. Oh, no, no. I think 2014 was when I got married because, um, so what my brother's so still I met, okay. I, I met my wife in 2012. At that time, she wasn't my wife. So we just using that description kind of and going backwards in time. Um, Hi. <laughs> You are my wife. <laughs> you don't know this, but you, That's made the first a thing you, you, you don't know this, but you made an unintentional, unconscious, lifelong promise to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss these jokes. <laughs> oh yeah. So my, I remember, um, yeah, that, so I think it was 2014. Now that I'm thinking, um, I don't know, like I said, I don't know what happened before very well, and I don't know what's going to happen next, but I kind of know what's happening now. Um, well, how did you get into philosophy? I mean, there's some, did you major in philosophy as an undergrad? Um, no, I didn't. I got into it because my father is a non-baptized um, person. Um, he's not anti-Christian or anti-religion. Uh, uh, my mother is a devout Protestant still, uh, and, and so I grew up in this kind of home where my dad was not a Christian, my mom's a Christian. I got trained um, in my high school days by some really awesome evangelical Christian science teachers. And I grew up with kind of a, a young earth creationism. My science teacher was an amazing man who had a semi-identical twin, he claimed. 
and the two of them at once at one point had were the Guinness Book of World Records for most vertical feet climbed in 24 hours. Oh wow! Running up and down mountains. Um, <laughs> this guy is an amazing guy. His name's Claire Thomas. Um, if he ever sees this, I love you. Hope you're doing well. Um, he's a great man. And uh, we, all of us at that time looked up to and all of us still do, but he taught me young earth creationism. And so I, my was dad this was at a public school or was it, yes. at a, it was at a, a public school at a public school. I mean, he didn't teach what state? it um, in Oregon, believe it or not. Mind blown on all accounts. But he also was my Sunday school teacher because we, I was, he was going to the Baptist church at that time. And so was I, even though he has mm -hmm. like um, Quaker upbringing um, and uh but I mean, he didn't teach us all students directly in class, the creationist line, but everybody knew what he thought. I mean, he talked to people after class, we went on field trips with him, people knew who he was. Um, so, so at any rate, he, so he did he, the evolution line on the, on class time. And then as soon as the bell rang, he's like, God created the world in six days. Yeah. Or what happened? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. I do not. Was this near George Fox university? <laughs> no, it's not. But um, that is a okay. You mentioned Quaker. I just had to ask. So no, he. So this is in Southern Oregon, uh, like right where the California Nevada border tees with Oregon. That's where I grew up. It's called, called Lakeview. Yeah, people talk like this up there. They're like, yeah, you you in the wrong place, boy. You in Southern Oregon, boy. So say exactly. No, not only that, but it was very, um, it was very egalitarian because there were also um, quite a few ladies in my high school that chewed tobacco just like that. Um, so, attractive, nice. Yeah. So <laughs> at any rate, my my dad was an evolutionist and I was a creationist, and there was lots of conversations back and forth. And I I realized at one point that we're looking at the same evidence. Right, but because we have different background beliefs, sort of from a worldview perspective, we interpret that evidence very differently. So he looks at, say, Archaeopteryx, right, and he sees evidence for evolution. And I look at Archaeopteryx, and I do not see evidence for biological evolution, common descent, and all the rest. I don't see that there. Um, and then I thought, well, why is that? So then I realized he doesn't believe in God, right, and I do. And so then I thought, well, how can I show him to believe in that? So then he'll look at that evidence and see it the way I see it. So then I got into apologetics and arguments for God's existence, the nature of God, natural theology, right? And yeah. then I found that, that, and I was totally into that in my undergrad days. By the time I went to high school, that's what I was interested in. I was doing music education because I wanted to be a band director and a science teacher somehow. <laughs> um, and they didn't have to yeah. They didn't have the science that I wanted, so I did music ed, and then I got really, really tired of the education part of it. Um, and so I became an interdisciplinary studies major, and I thought I want to go to grad school. And by that point, I had read Love Your God With All Your Mind, mm. and I had read uh, Os Guinness's Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. Mm. And I became a sort of crusader against sort of anti-intellectualism, fideism, right, that, you know, um, philosophy is dangerous. History is not, you know, instructive. Um, art and beauty is not that important. It's just whatever the Bible says, kind of this sort of, you know, got the blinders on and that's all you look at. Um, and so I got interested in philosophy and then I went to Talbot. And of course, that's where we all met. And uh, that was an amazing formative time for me. And then I did a PhD in philosophy at St. Louis University. And then I got a job here at Franciscan University. 
Um, I think by that point I had graduated like 30th grade finally. So after I got out of 30th grade, I finally got back into school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a quick story. So from creation evolution to apologetics to philosophy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, we, we had a lot of conversations, uh, a lot of conversations yeah. in grad school. That was uh, around apologetics, around the notion of, of God and love. Yes. Uh, I remember I remember when you were leaving, uh, it was around the time that you left, Fon yeah. uh, uh, Hildebrandt, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that, that led me on actually quite an interesting journey, too. Yeah, that, that's great. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Put it, put it up awesome. to the camera. See if, yeah, okay. What is philosophy by Dietrich von Hildebrand? Yep. Who's the publisher on that? Um, the Dietrich von Hildebrand Legacy Project, which is right here, right? I could throw a rock to it from my office. Oh, no kidding. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, and I've been involved with them during summers. They do summer seminars. They do conferences that their founder is my friend. He's, he's our age. Right. And he's the son of one of my eminent colleagues here named John Crosby. So his name is John Henry Crosby and John Crosby is a famous kind of personalist like JP two Dietrich von Hildebrand, John Henry Newman, right. Defending this sort of personalism idea, which, you know, a, a lot of Christians, and I'm sure you guys, if you've heard of it, you're fans of it. Um, so uh, it's kind of a movement, I guess I could say, or kind of camp within sort of philosophy in the 20th century, you know, in response to totalitarianism, as JP2 said, pulverizing the human individual. Yeah. So Dietrich von Hildebrand, who was he? Why is he important? Dietrich von Hildebrand. What do you believe? Yeah, Dietrich von Hildebrand was a what's called a realist phenomenologist, so would be in the same camp as Dallas Willard. Mm -hmm. um, and, what, and what's phenomenology? Phenomenology is a kind of philosophy that um, a movement or a, a method in philosophy or a method of doing philosophy that began in the early 20th century um, with, with Edmund Husserl. Now, there's obviously influences before that that you might trace back to it, but he's kind of the recognized founder of it. Yeah. Then you have a, a sort of group of people that start growing out of that and phenomenology kind of gets its own life and it becomes very not realist um, from Heidegger forward. So I had, I met in Dallas Willard's office one time and he thought, and he told me this, he said, the greatest tragedy in philosophy in the 20th century is that Adolf Reinach, who was a realist phenomenologist, who was Dietrich von Hildebrand called his philosophical father, right? Um, died in World War I. And so then all the influence of the phenomenological method and tradition fell to Heidegger and then all the structuralist, post-structuralist, kind of that way of doing, the existentialist kind of followed that line, which was, which was not friendly to Christianity or theism by and large. Mm -hmm. It was very opposed to that. Um, so that was a tragedy in philosophy. But how, how would you characterize phenomenology as a method that yeah. the good kind? Like, yeah. what's it supposed to do? Yeah. And give us something to hang on to. There's yeah. a lot of words you're throwing around post structuralist, existentialist. Sorry. Yeah. Totalitarian. <laughs> I think most people know what that is, but yeah, I'm throwing a lot of words around. Sorry. Um, uh, you hold me to, you hold me to the um, clarifying jargon constantly. That's good. Uh, so, yeah. So it's at that time in the history of philosophy, 
philosophy had lost its way, I would say, in the 1900s. And people were... I guess we haven't really even said what philosophy is yet, but but well, how would you say, what would you say philosophy is so that we know that what you the mean easiest, by that? The easiest, best, most traditional and deepest way to understand philosophy is that it's the love of wisdom. And that's what the word actually means, philo, Sophia, love of wisdom. Now, then the question is, what kind of wisdom are we trying to love here? And... Uh, St. Augustine gives a famous definition of wisdom that I tell my students and make them memorize and that wisdom, right, is the truth, right, in which we discern and acquire our highest good. Mm. That is what wisdom is, the truth in which we discern our highest good and in which we acquire our highest good. That's what we want. That's what everybody's longing for ultimate meaning, for ultimate truth, Right, we could say ultimate, you know, um, a, an ultimate sense of identity that's satisfactory. We could say it that way. That's, we, let's say that one more time. Yes, everybody, everybody longs for like an ultimate meaning in life, an ultimate truth, something ultimately satisfying, right? Um, and maybe we call that beauty. Maybe we call that God. Maybe we call that the infinite. What something that we desperately desire, and everybody, I think, who's honest will recognize they have that desire. And right. so that is the desire for this thing. And wisdom is how we know what that is and how we get it. And so a philosopher is somebody that loves that. And so when, um, when Socrates said he was a philosopher, people said he was a philosopher, right? Um, he said, the thing that I love is the thing I don't yet have. That's why I'm loving it. I, this wisdom I want is sort of like the mind of God, right? Divine wisdom. It's this truth this ultimate truth about our highest good, how, what it is and how we get it. And so we are loving it. So we get some clues so that we can direct our human life towards its true goal. It's true. end, it's, it's true fulfillment. Uh -huh. To me, philosophy is not a professional subject matter. Philosophy is not a set of books that you find in the library. Philosophy is something that everybody does to some degree, completely naturally. If you go into the first pages of the preface of this book by von Hildebrand, right? He says that everybody asks fundamental questions about life. We can call them the questions of the universe. You know, where, where is my life going? Does it have any ultimate meaning? Is there anything after death, right? Is there a God? How do I really know the difference between right or wrong, right? Do, can I really know things or should I be skeptical about everything, you know? And so those fundamental questions, I had third graders asking me these questions when I, when I was a camp counselor. I mean, this is natural to human beings. Every society, right, that has, that, that is a society, that is a human, you know, community, has language. And if they have language, then they ask these questions are just inherent. And so philosophy is that human quest, right, to pursue that. Now, the discipline of philosophy, as it began in ancient Greece, right, the famous pre-Socratic philosophers, the birth of philosophy, it doesn't mean the birth of this natural inclination right? It means the birth of a discipline within society to take that inclination seriously and try to be, for lack of a better term, more scientific, right? More organized, more systematic, right? To deal more explicitly with arguments, write them down, right? And subject them to scrutiny using reason, looking for the best evidence that we can get through logical argumentation, right? But ultimately aimed at those questions we all ask, the answers to those questions, and so why is it important to write it down? Because we forget. Yeah, we don't we can't keep it in our mind long enough. 
I think I think it's important to, to write it down because then you you can subject it to scrutiny in a way that you couldn't when you just speak it. Right. So when you write something down, the the, the glory of a of a literary culture, right, is that we have things written down and now they can be subjected to the scrutiny of everybody else. If we just had an only oral culture, we wouldn't be able to subject as many ideas and claims to the amount of scrutiny that we do. Right. And so as people of the book, right, our tradition, right, the Judeo-Christian tradition takes that to the max. And so to me, the, the, the objectors or the complainers about our tradition, the Judeo-Christian ethic, right, that we're just fideistic and we're just people that believe in faith. Well, ironically, right, the people that subjected this book, the Bible, to intense scrutiny over thousands of years now, right, they are honing, right, a kind of reasoning right, a kind of critical ability, right, that has been brought up in the history of humanity higher than any other civilization, right? We have done that. Why? Of course we have faith, but our faith is seeking understanding, right? And our understanding that we're seeking is this divine wisdom. That's what we ultimately want. So a, a, a real Christian or a real Jew, right, they have a desire and motivation to be as maximally reasonable as they can because they believe yeah. this is one true God and they think that they can defend that. So now they have to, right? Yeah. And even when you write it down, people still screw with it and say stuff that it doesn't mean. And it's like, you can just go back, you know, like with the second amendment, it's like, well, wait, hold on a second. Let's, you know, it's, it doesn't say the government has a right to bear arms. It says the people have a right to bear arms. And, you know, same with the Bible too, you know, like people, it's nice if you can go back to it and go that's actually what it said and same with like interpersonal stuff like people might say something and they forget that they said it a certain way that's why we have contracts that's why we spell out agreements you know stuff like that so yeah that's really interesting yeah now you were talking about getting up to phenomenology this guy i forget his name um the guy that died in World War One, Adolf Reinach. Okay, you had said that philosophy up at that point had lost its way. Yes, and you were just about to define phenomenology and the yes. way it should be done. Yes. So okay. philosophy had lost its way, meaning I think that it it was it really desperately wanted this wisdom, so it still had that desire, but I think it had lost its way because now the notion of what's true or how we find truth, right, has become confused. So we, we, are, we are divorced from reality in such a way that now reality can't be our guide, right? It's more like the way we're talking has to be structured in a certain way, or the way we're making our ideas have to be structured in a certain way. And that when we do that the right way, well, that's the closest we can get to wisdom. But now reality is no longer being our guide, Right, we aren't letting, we aren't making our minds become adequate to the world, right? In in informing us in that way, it's more like we're kind of constructing, right, a kind of network of ideas, right, or words. And you know, if we can kind of do that interpersonally in a way, then I guess we're wiser. So it lost track. You're of saying that's what they're saying. Yes. Okay, but that's not the right way to do it. Not the right way. So obviously, the truth does have to do with words and ideas, duh, but it also has to do with reality, right? So there's got to be a relationship between those two things. And that is what I think got challenged or blocked or maybe even cut. And so then in the early 20th 
the century, philosophers of, of various sorts at, uh, in various places wanted to recover our connection to reality, recover that, right? And so that's the intention of Husserl, Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology, to recover that connection to reality. Um, and so Reinach and, and the early phenomenologists or the realist phenomenologists, including von Hildebrand, right? And other people like Ida Stein. And those, those people thought that Husserl's method of phenomenology gave us a way to recover the truth, right? Gave us a way to recover our connection to reality. And Willard's complaint was, or Willard's statement about the tra tragedy of Reinach's death was that Heidegger's philosophy right, took phenomenological method in a different direction than these people, than these realists did. So it kind of landed us back in the problem that we tried to get out of, that Husserl was trying to get out of. It's like uh -huh. they brought him back to the place where he was trapped. That's, that's Willard's view. And that's what I think is important about. Why is it called phenomenology? Yeah. So I think the idea is, is that when, when we think about things, we have all these ideas and thoughts and judgments before our mind, you might say, like as objects of thought, objects of desire, objects of hope, right? They might exist, they might not exist, but they have certain important relationships to each other. Um, and we can start our philosophy by carefully describing the relationships of our ideas, the types of objects, how our attitudes are related to those different objects, how our different attitudes are different from each other, hope, fear, right? All these different sorts of attitudes, sorrow, love. Um, and so we can start to kind of map out all these interrelationships first before we say, okay, and this is real or this is the way things really are. So it starts with kind of carefully thinking about all the stuff that we can think about and all the ways or attitudes we can have about thinking about it. So as not to, um, so as to get back to reality rather than we start with what some other philosopher said or some other thinker said, and we just sort of take for granted what he was doing and then sort of build in his school or his model was really trying to start from ground zero again. Um, and so that to me, the method is fundamentally, um, uh, it, it's fundamentally Cartesian. Right, where we have all these ideas before our mind, right? Now, it's not necessarily stuck in, in the way Descartes they did things, which was, I would say, for the audience, overly individualistic. Uh, because the phenomenologists were also trying to discuss culture, right? Society, art, like things that are interpersonal, right? Uh, so this guy, Dietrich von Hildebrand, he made a big impact on you? Yeah, I remember when I was at Talbot, I got into the epistemology. I mean, that's what, when I came to Talbot, I was interested. Alex, in is there any way you could come a little closer to the, the camera right. so we can get a look at you? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's the Alex I remember. All the gray. Yeah. Um, so we got that going on. I don't so know what you're talking so about. So distinguished. That's called wisdom, brother. That's what that Absolutely, is. Yeah. <laughs> how to how to acquire and discern wisdom. That's right. That's right. <laughs> did you read him when you were at Biola? I did. I did an independent study on that book I just showed you with Guyvet, with Dr. Dr. Guyvet. Um, R. Douglas Guyvet, as his pen name is. Um, our friend Doug. Um, yeah. and mentor, for sure. Mm -hmm. So 
so yeah, I, I did an independent study in that because I, I was trying to find out about evidence. What, what is evidence? What, what, how does our mind actually connect to reality, right? How, do, how, do, how can we discover more about that? And so that's why I studied von Hildebrand. And I are you confident that we can connect with reality? I'm absolutely confident we can. Um, I do have some critiques that I didn't have back then for, for, about his philosophy. Um, but I think he's fundamentally right that we are connected to reality and that our ideas and our language doesn't disconnect us from reality, but in fact is how we're connected. It's like a mediator, right? Um, can you give an example? Um, yeah, so here's an example for that, that I use in my class that, so my son, one time he was playing with a plug, right? And plugging it in and out, you know? And I, I pulled it out and he, and he said, daddy, don't plug that out. <laughs> now he had never heard any human being utter the, 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 the verb plug out. And yet he used it in a situation which it was obviously and perfectly meaningful. Right. So his words, somehow he had an ability, we would say, because he's a rational being, he had an ability to use these morphemes like out is the opposite of in and it attaches to the end of a verb. He couldn't conceptualize any of that, but he just does it naturally because he's rational. And he connected it in that way and used it in the context where his verbal behavior and his nonverbal behavior were obviously woven together so that that statement was meaningful. And of course, in that context, right? Right, we could obviously make assertions about, right? Well, I just did unplug it, or I just did plug it out. And that assertion could be meaningful and, and make it be a judgment about the way things are right in that context. And so there's an instance where words are interweaving with reality, right? To be able to say things meaningful about the way things are. Hmm. So that's, that's a great example. Yeah, that we're obviously connected. And that's how language even gets meaning in the first place, right? And that's right. Everybody agrees that language is meaningful and they couldn't even agree if they didn't already have language, right? So to me, language is to, to, to me much more important in, in, in discussing how the mind connects with the world than von Hildebrandt thought it was. He, I think what he's doing is he's working with ideas kind of in the mind, like objects of thought and stuff like that. And I think he's kind of relying on a lot of what our language gives us. They give us a lot of those ideas and interrelationships. So he's, he's, he's super close, I think, to the truth on that point. And, and his ultimate conclusions are correct. So I would only sort of disagree with some of his, some of his means to his ends, I guess I could say, or some of the arguments that he proposes for his conclusion. So, yeah. So you went from this guy Hildebrand to Anscombe so you, yeah. you you did this study at Biola, yes, with uh, Doug Guyvet, yep, and then you went to St. Louis University. Did Correct. you go right away, or did was there a gap? There there was a gap, and um, and during that year, I uh, I was a security guard for a while. I probably talked to you on the phone at some point when I was a security guard. <laughs> I had a lot of conversations with friends. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I took it, basically I took a year off, but I was also at that time adjuncting part-time for the Tory honors program mm. at Biola, which was okay. an amazing experience, uh, you know, God bless them and what they're doing mm -hmm. and, uh, super formative for me. Oh, yes. Program. I do remember that because you invited me to 
help lead a discussion one time. Yeah. It was like a three hour discussion and exactly. (laughs) And I was trying to figure out who was BSing. You know, because you know, there's certain there's certain modal there's certain methodologies of BS. Exactly. That we're trying to conceal your BS. I've seen those Tory people absolutely staying up at really late the night before trying to they're pretending that they're reading that 800 uh, page volume uh for their next class yes a philosopher that wrote a book on bs actually absolutely (laughs) that's an important concept i mean we used to call it if we're if we're we're studying plato we would call it sophistry right with the modern or it's bullshit so you know that's the same thing it's just when it's really clever right yeah Yeah. clever bs how did you feel about the way they run the, the, the classroom, Tori? I love that. I love that methodology of the Socratic questions, getting in a circle, making students articulate judgments and ideas in actual language that's really being used. Good, yeah. right? So they're doing kind of at a complex level what my son was doing in that situation. Mm-hmm. They might be trying out some terms or trying out ideas, or maybe they're yeah. trying to like, and that you have to, a, a person who's thinking, is a person who is uttering things in their mind or out loud that are not cliches. So to me, cliches are the are are somebody else's thoughts. So for example, I think a really famous cliche these days is, um, "What's wrong with two people that love each other?" That's a cliche. Many people. Nothing. Say, I mean, my grandpa and I hang out all the time. What are you talking about? Exactly. exactly. Doesn't mean we're married. Exactly. And so people say that when they want to stop the conversation, not when they want to keep thinking. Love wins, Alex. Yeah, love wins. That's another. So, By the way, I love Aristotle. Yeah. Therefore, you can marry a dead person. Yeah. <laughs> so, so to me, a person who is is writing or speaking in a non-cliche way, um, and I would say, Lucas, from my memories of you, is that was something you were always doing. You were always saying things in different ways than other people. And it was always great to have conversations with you, I remember, because I would have some new concepts or new connections of concepts or words that I'd never heard before. And it always made me think a lot more. So to me, that's the evidence of somebody who's actually originally thinking. Well, that's a really high compliment, Alex. Thank you. You betcha. Um, And and I think I just warned since then, although I've, I've gone to the cliche, basically my entire conversations with people now is just trying to figure out. What, am I going to call them a racist? Yes. A homophobe, a bigot, a yeah. xenophobe. Yeah. And I keep looking for that in the, the dictionary under Z, but I, I haven't found it yet, but I'm just trusting it's there. Uh, maybe it's in a dictionary philosophy. Someone's afraid of Zeno or something. I, but anyway, I'm sh- that, that's what people say. So that's what I, when I'm at the grocery store, they say, do you have any coupons? And I say, xenophobe. Yeah. Um, so anyway. <laughs> It really helps. I think that's Twitter. the best. Yeah, the best way to pursue philosophy um, is to call people names so that then you don't have to do it. And then you can feel like you're right. Right. So that's, right. that's the, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I think there is, I think that the real, the, 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 what do I say? At one point, the Surgeon General came out and said that the number one problem in our country today, this was during the, you know, in the midst of the first year of the pandemic, I believe, is, is medical misinformation. That's the number one problem in our, in our society today. Um, the number one danger. And I think, no, I think the real pandemic is like people are not thinking for themselves. People are following what other people say 
and they're not able to put together thoughts in the right way because we have abandoned philosophy right as an important cultural habit and so to me philosophy is sort of the antidote and the and the medicine for ideology and ideological thinking of any stripe right left economic political it doesn't matter right none of us want to be you know just ideologues or in other words the the same thing that the sort of secular atheists um, complain about Christians being, which is just faith alone and fideism, that's what an ideology is. An ideology is a fundamentally blind faith commitment to certain fundamental ideas that now no longer can be discussed rationally. And so now, like, I, like we were talking about before, which is now everything in our conversations have to just be moves of power, moves to get sort of a dominant position over another person. It doesn't have to do with the truth in which we discern and acquire our highest good. We no longer do that as a society. So if, if, if that's the way our conversations are going, then it's impossible for us to pursue a common good. If it's impossible for us to pursue the common good, it is impossible for us to pursue our own good. Mm. Because as you guys know, Aristotle's one of his most famous ideas is the good of the self is the good of the other and the good of the other is the good of the self right? We can't separate these two. So I think we fundamentally need philosophy, right? For our own, you might say, for, for our own salvation, ultimately, right? Um, to get us in the right direction, right? To see where we can know things and where we can't know things. And we need to ultimately pray for help and somebody to get us the rest of the way. Um, so we need philosophy that, but we also need philosophy to do politics the way it should be done. So I think there's a fundamentally social dimension to philosophy that that I didn't get, I didn't get clearly when I was at Talbot. There was very little political philosophy at Talbot. Mm -hmm. um, there was a little bit, but um, right, that's right. That, that was a dimension that I had that I'm still trying to learn about now. It's kind of a part of my education as a professional philosopher. I, I've been trying to work on. Well, you you got the basics right. Yeah, Curtis, it looked like you're about to say something. Where did I cut you off? No, I'm just I'm soaking this up. This is I'm just in agreement with some of this. This is great, Alex. Cool. I just, I had, I did have the thought, man, if anybody is looking to go to a school and get mentored by someone, this is the man, hey, this is the man. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Let me uh, kind of narrate what I feel, how I feel just for people, if they have hung this long, just to kind of summarize how I feel this conversation is going. I think if you're interviewing somebody, you have to adapt to the person you're interviewing. And they're diff different people have different styles. So there's some people that are just like list people, you know, let's go down the list, you know, oh, do we cover that? Okay. Yeah. The next one. And it's like a PowerPoint person. Yeah. Yeah. Know? And uh, I think a better way to learn is someone like Alex, where we are going through a list. You might not be able to follow it. Uh, we were just on. He left Biola for his master's degree. He's going to doc, do his doctoral work at St. Louis University, but it's this gap year of uh, being a security guard. And, and then there's some tangents that go off that, but they flow naturally out of what we were talking about. And if you, if you try to police that, those tangents too much, I know it drives some people nuts, but a lot of times the tangents are where all the nuggets and the gems are. Preach it, brother. Yep. So, you know, Preach. if you just get rid of those, 
famous uh, political philosopher that, I mean, I studied with him in the sense that I saw him lecture and talk and, and just be himself, which was annoying to most people, but his name is Harry Jaffa. And he taught my professors and he was taught by Leo Strauss. And anyway, mm. so it's kind of like Dallas Willard to us. And yes. so politically that's, yeah, I'm in that stream. Yes. And he, he did this all the, he, he was famous for, and you can get these anecdotes in Glenn Elmer's new book on Jaffa, but uh, he was famous for uh, going way over class time and nobody noticed. Wow. <laughs> Just at so many tangents that says something he's famous for that and and so that's i i don't think i can mimic that very well but you know he's almost impossible to mimic but i just think that um it, it drives some people nuts but at the same time it's like well but that's also what makes it special so I, I completely now, agree. yeah can i just yeah. jump that I, I want to take a tangent on this notion of, of the tangent it would um, be inappropriate if you didn't okay so <laughs> No, back what I said, like, I think one important way of understanding how the mind connects with the world and we can really get to reality, right, is language. And I kind of described a little example when we talked about the Tory discussion. But to me, tangents, the reason I take tangents is because some student asks a question or makes a comment. And so then I have to attend to what they're actually trying to think about. I am trying to do what they're trying to do, which is weave our words together. That's really good. Right, find the truth. It's and relationship. We, it's relationship. We have to let the language and the conversation weave with reality in order for us to find it, right? And that's why the, right. the genius of Socrates was the Socratic discussion, right? And why I love that method and why when I'm in class, I have lots of tangents and I try to get questions, right? I'm not at all sort of um, dissing the straight lecture method either, but there's got to be a time where students ask questions. They kind of get mentored, as you would put you, they ask it in their terms That's right. and you have to try to understand what their terms mean and help them. With, that's how we pursue truth. And that's how you get them to together. not and, be cliche. And, it's, and that's how we flourish, right? Is in through relationship. Um, I, I would, you know, that that's interesting as you're talking about all that. Um, it's making me think about uh, morning prayer. I do morning prayer every morning uh, with my dad and on the weekends um, the, the kids join on occasion, you know, right. like, and, and Caitlin, she's nine and, uh, uh, she's forever asking questions. She's my talker. She, I, I have five kids, but really Caitlin's uh, talks for about three of them. Um, <laughs> but she is always asking questions and I get into that mode with morning prayer. You know, I want to read the scriptures and then, you know, have, then have a time to talk about it. she'll right in the middle of the passage. Well, wait, what about this? Well, wait, what about I thought God did, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I've had to learn to tangent with her. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and really it's, it's grown our relationship, but it's also grown her wonder and her, her excitement about exploring scripture. Um, it, it's, it's the best way to learn. Yeah. Fist Walk bump. with people. Boom. Fist bump. That was awesome. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that that's all Great. true. And I, I think the only thing is, the 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 challenge is the the very limited um attention span i guess so some people will have a hard time 
with because they have lower attention span and they can't quite meet the challenge of the tangents or whatever and so they get frustrated and and they complain you know and they, they give you a low evaluation and um <laughs> of course the evaluation form doesn't have any tangents on it not really <laughs> so you know the the evaluation form itself is sort of biased against it it's like um anyway but uh I, I was going to say something. I, I'm forgetting what it was exactly. That's another consequence of the tangent form. But well, we were just talking about about you know how philosophy you know relates to pursuing the truth, relates to politics. Yeah. And how how we connect to the world. That's a fundamental element. We need, you I, were I was going to say the, something about tangents uh, yeah. really quick, but and maybe it'll come to me before we're done. We'll go back to your security guard. Yeah. <laughs> what do you recommend taking a break from school and Absolutely. doing do. like normal stuff quote unquote normal stuff i i do recommend that um i think that education it, it necessarily needs to have kind of a like intensity and relaxation intensity then relaxation because we need time to contemplate all the words and all the things that we just experience and try to there's a kind of settling effect that it's hard to explain how that really works, but maybe one way to do it would, would use the analogy that our, our beliefs are like a structure inside of our souls, right? And that there's an elaborate structure that's there because beliefs kind of are, are the judgments we make that kind of stuck in our mind. That, like if you're asleep, they're still there, right? So, so they're in a certain structure, a complicated structure that is largely consistent, although we all know that it's not completely consistent. Um, and that's what we're always trying to look at when we're learning things. But when we learn a bunch of stuff, it goes into that structure and certain things sift and, and kind of rest in the right spot or don't. And then certain things might, you might wake up or you might be thinking about something you read last week and you're like, that's something about that. And you, then you wanna have a conversation with it about it. And so I think that the relaxation time is really important to be contemplative, not to get just more information like mm -hmm. we have this we have this obsession with information as if information is knowledge or as if information is wisdom it's not it's not it's actually what what prevents it that's and, huge right there yeah that is huge yeah we know so many truths already and like you said earlier about common sense we know so much already that we need to know mm -hmm. we get distracted right we need to adjust our structure of beliefs and so but we don't Typically, I think we typically don't need more information. We typically need to reflect on the things that we already do know and how they relate to the other things that we know and whether they're important or whether we're following out their implications in our life and things like that. So I think, yeah, a time of relaxation, I would recommend that to anybody if they want to do higher education to take time off before you go higher. Was it relaxing that year? Was it relaxing to be a security guard? It was absolutely important to me. I was like working through a lot of ideas that I had been reflecting on. Um, and obviously you have a lot of time where there's nobody there but you. Um, so I would listen to music, I would read things. You know, I would. I, I remember I tried to uh, memorize the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew. Um, <laughs> like that, you know, that I've cool. always kind of wanted to do and I needed the kind of leisure time in the, in the good sense of leisure, right? Not yeah. just amusements, but you know, um, serious activities that are worth loving for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I had a chance to do. Uh, 
How'd you get the idea to go to St. Louis University? Um, because Greco was there, John Greco, the epistemologist. Um, he's still there. So I wanted to do more epistemology. And so I, I applied to there in Rochester where John was, Kwok, our friend. Um, and, and so I applied to both those places and I got offers from Rochester and St. Louis. And the St. Louis offer was really a better offer. And there were other advantages to that place. So I ended up going there. Um, but what, what attracted you to John Greco? Um, I mean, he was an eminent epistemologist. So I knew I had dis, I knew I, from Talbot, we kind of learned this sort of an approach to epistemology that's not completely compatible with what he's doing. But he was a, you know, he was a good guy, an honest guy and, a, and an eminent scholar, which to me bolstered my chances to getting a job eventually if I had a prestigious director. But subsequently after arriving at at St. Louis University, I, I kind of lost interest in, to a degree in the kind of epistemological discussions I was having. Um, I think it was an unintended effect of studying with John Greco and other people in that sphere of kind of professional um, Anglo-American philosophy of knowledge. You know, there, there was kind of, I felt like certain things were not being attended to and there were certain really technical jargony debates that were sort of cutting me off from learning more about what I really wanted to know. And so my area, my interest began to shift to different things. And that's where I really started pursuing my interest in Elizabeth Anscombe's philosophy. I had, I first encountered her at Talbot in a class with Scott Ray, um, an ethics class with Scott Ray, because she wrote a really famous paper for the Catholic Truth Society called Contraception and Chastity where she tries to defend the kind of traditional Catholic teaching on contraception and connect it with the virtue of, of chastity. And I, I was really interested in that issue. So I studied her and that's the first time I encountered her. And then I started reading various papers by her. And every time I read it, I had this same experience where she would open up a question that I had never thought of before and give me like a little bit of a teaser for an insight, like a direction. There you go. Come closer yeah. to the camera. We want to see yeah. if it's yeah. comfortable. Is it uncomfortable for you? No, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so she would. Your give voice me is clearer too when you're close. Okay, good. She she would give me a, a question that was different than I had ever conceived of. So it then sent me in a different direction. She would suggest certain ways forward, and I would have a hard time following her exactly what she was saying because she's not an easy um, writer, right? She's not an easy person to read. She does pain in the ass. Yeah, she doesn't help the reader out because she's just sort of thinking, right? Now, some of her pieces like Contraception and Chastity are for a popular audience, so it is easier to understand those, but she wrote lots of professional articles too and her famous book on, on human action, the nature of human action and intention. I, I read that and I understood like 20%. Uh, <laughs> but she would intrigued me everything I read. And so then I eventually got into her because um, she wrote about the principle of double effect, which I got interested in, in ethics. Mm. Um, and then, then she got in, she, I realized at the heart of her entire ethical philosophy of her, all of her work, she was trying to defend traditional morality. And so in this culture that is besieged, right? And, and yet that is a source of wisdom that is, that is in our language. It's like imbued in the way we talk about virtues and vices. There's hundreds of words, right, that describe virtues and vices and uh, character traits that we think are, 
are we should be trying to become like people that have those traits you know generous gentle kind patient right all those words are just imbued in our language and yet this traditional ethic was being rejected right by people who were talking about ethics and cultural leaders because they had complaints about basically the kind of legal framework that goes with the kind of judeo-christian ethic it's kind of in terms of laws right the ten commandments you might say um but but i think they were throwing out the baby with the bathwater. they didn't see that underneath this kind of law conception or way of talking about laws that come from god there's this conception that's common sense about the character we, we want to be just we want to be prudent wise we want to be courageous and self-controlled and all these things we all accept right as common sense good things to be um and so then i thought that's what's at the heart of her project is defending traditional morality and that's why she's defending a double effect right and that's what my dissertation went into that element and so that so i shifted away from epistemology and pursued kind of moral philosophy how and long did it take you to make that shift? A couple of years, one year, one semester? I'd say maybe a, maybe a year or two. Okay. Because um, I, I was taking classes and I was still interested in epistemology. Um, but from my time at Talbot, I would, I, there were, I would say three really big ideas that changed my life, right? One of them was what we were talking about, epistemology. We can know the truth. We don't have to be skeptics. The mind really does connect with the world and we need to pursue that. And we can really find what I was calling wisdom earlier in this episode. Um, that was the first thing. And the next thing was the virtue tradition, right? Like yes. ethics is about virtue formation and about character development and not just about rules of right and wrong. Um, now, of course, once you get the character stuff then the rules are related to that, but that's a fundamental part of our tradition that I had only encountered when I was at Talbot. You can't extrapolate the two. Exactly. And then the third thing was a, a kind of more philosophical and theological uh, um, defense that made sense to me of the freedom of the will. Hmm. Um, I had always believed in free will. I was always opposed to the people in my um, Protestant tradition I grew up with who denied free will. I was always against that crowd. But then when I was at Talbot, I finally had philosophical philosophical theoretical tools to to deepen my conviction that we really do have free will and we're not determined by the past or our culture or anything else to do what we do we still have freedom now of course there's influences in our culture and our past and all that but we still are fundamentally free right to decide to pursue the good or not to pursue it so um, you believe that we can know things you believe truth exists it's knowable yeah. it's accessible Bingo. common sense is our friend it's not yeah. our enemy exactly. uh, philosophy really shouldn't ignore it People like Anscombe are trying to defend traditional morality that we know about, we're acquainted with, are doing a major service to humankind, and it's worth studying those people. Exactly. Um, you, you also uh, are against cliches and for having quality conversations, uh, for getting people to think carefully and critically. You believe in God. You believe... Um, did you grow up Christian? I did. I, I grew up. I don't know if I yeah. asked you that. It seemed like you had some disagreements with your dad. So I wasn't sure if you wanted to get into that or mention that. But Sure. I mean, that element was what impelled me. It kind of, um, uh, I think it was the first moment kind of God was leading me into philosophy. I mean, 
this debate defending defending my, my Christian faith that I grew up with. So I grew up a, a liberal Presbyterian, like PCUSA, um, which I was in that church until seventh grade where my mom left that church with my twin brother and my sister and I, and became, we became Baptists. Um, and eventually I was even, I was baptized as a Presbyterian three years old, but then I got baptized again when I was a Baptist because I, my beliefs in baptism changed. Um, they eventually reverted to the original one, <laughs> but at any rate, um, then I was a Baptist and then I went to a Baptist college. I went to Western Baptist college in Oregon. Now it's called yeah. university. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, I had a crisis of faith. I tried to become an atheist at a Baptist college. Um, and I doubted everything. I, I you doubted. tried to become an atheist. I tried to become an atheist, meaning I was, I had this skeptical, um, bug. I got infected with skepticism. So I thought, well, how do I know that this Bible is reliable? How do I know that it wasn't made up by these people back then? You're poking <laughs> things to see yeah. how, how far you yeah. can poke. Yeah. Yeah. And though my mom, I loved my mom. I thought maybe she was just telling me what her pastor said. And I mean, why believe what these people are telling me? I mean, it could be different. And then of course I had objections. And then I thought, you know, some of the beliefs in, in Christian doctrine are pretty wild, you know, like, um, like the hypostatic union, the Trinity, Right. And of course, the inspiration of scripture itself, like how does God superintend these human words so that they're perfect? But oh, yeah, it was the autographs that were perfect, not all these copies. Right. And then like, how do I deal with Then how do I? A lot, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Just that then, a lot of Christians don't even know that that part right there. That's true. That's true they don't. Um, and so then I so that I couldn't expunge my um, I couldn't expunge my psychological awareness of the presence of god like i i could tell a story about it i could tell the story like that's projection of my you know my father desires or like that's a sociological cause right from my upbringing but i but i still nevertheless would it seemed to me there was a god but i couldn't get rid of that but the arguments the atheistic arguments that he doesn't exist failed but similarly the arguments that he does exist were not persuasive so I was in like agnostic land, right? I give you anxiety. How, how are you feeling yeah, at this time? Existential angst. Totally existential angst. I remember one of my really good friends at Talbot, who was a roommate of my brother's, his name was Tim Burke. Um, and Tim Burke, one time he said to me, he came across me and was like, he's like, where's your joy, brother? Mm. And that like struck me. It was, it was grace, like in that comment. It's one of those comments where it's like a human speaks, but it was God who was telling you something, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it, it struck me. It struck me to the core, like something's wrong. You know, I'm not doing what's right in a certain way. I'm not doing what's good. I just assumed it was good, right? Because I thought that truth can be pursued without goodness, you might say. Um, so then I was like, wait a minute, something's up with this. And then I, and then of course I had already encountered all the apologetical defenses of the existence of God. So I couldn't go full atheist, but I, they didn't feel convincing. But then I ended up through friendship and other experiences, prayer, lots of things coming to think, I, this is not projection. I'm not projecting this presence of God. And these arguments are good. They're not complete, don't give me complete certainty, but they are good reasons, right? And these other reasons, if I compare them and try to be honest, they're not as good. Yeah. Right? And I came out as what I called a mere Christian, 
right? So like C.S. Lewis is mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I loved. And that's what I wanted to defend the rest of my life. That's when I encountered JP's book, JP Moreland's book, Love Your God with All Your Mind and Oz Guinness's book. That was at at Western? That was at Western Baptist. And I gave the first alumni lecture series on this issue. And it was about intellectualism. Um, Oh, cool. I loved it. And um, so, so that. Did Did you take logic at Western? I did take logic at Western. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Now, I'm interested. So, you, uh, I can see the seeds of your Catholic conversion already. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you're talking about you can't pursue truth without goodness. Yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah. It's a very Catholic thing to say, actually, yeah. for those who know. But. Um, can you uh, characterize for us the conversion to Catholicism or however you want to, however you want to put it? Yeah, I think it was. So when I came to Talbot, I was a mere Christian. I was still um, going to the, the evangelical free church. I forget which the one on La Habra. Is that, I can't remember the name of the street. Is that um, yeah. Yeah. La Habra and Imperial? Yeah. It wasn't EV the big, yeah. EV, talk- yeah. The one in Fullerton or the one in no. the big one or the, the Grace little, one? The, the one Grace, on the littler one. The, the Grace one. EV Free? Yes. Where all the Biola professors yes. uh, take turns tag teaming, you know, like, I'm going to hand this off to you. And sometimes yes. it's a pitch. Yep. And, so I was, you know, there, I was going there to begin with. And I, and I became more and more disconcerted and discontent with, with what I was experiencing. And meaning coffee was that bad yeah no the coffee no no it's exact opposite lucas the (laughs) coffee and the coffee hour was the only good thing um i i realized at one point that that's why i'm going i get coffee and donuts i can talk to my friends right and i was like wait a minute that's why they put them out brings people yes i i was and meaning no disrespect to the talbot theologians right the theology curriculum that we had to take at talbot was very dissatisfying to a lot of the philosophers, not just me. And I, I mean, no disrespect because there were obvious exceptions. I mean, you know, Clint Arnold was an amazing professor that I learned a lot from and, you know, God bless him and Joe Hellerman, you know, these, there are some amazing people there, but some of the systematic theology was not connecting with me. It wasn't connecting to philosophical um, ideas. It was kind of more fideistic in my mind. And so then I'd go to, church I, I i escaped a lot of that when i was there because i had done theology at denver mm-hmm. seminary and exactly. my professor was he had a phd in philosophy yeah so as as the systematic theologian gordon r lewis sorry continue no that's awesome um so so i went so i went to church and i felt this dis-ease and i real one time i remember sitting in church and the music is being sung and I, I'm a trained musician, a classical musician, and I sing and I play trumpet and I play the piano. And I'm like, this music is just like kind of warmed over pop music style. So it's nothing different than I experience in the world. It's shitty. It, it's, it's, it's <laughs> even, even, I would say this, not only is it shitty in the way it's performed typically, because it's not performed well, but even when it's performed the best, the music itself as music 
is not representing the transcendent reverent sacred that, boundaries of worship that is such a good yes uh distinction that you just provided us it's not vac or it's vacuous yes i would say i would i would say this because i i'm at yeah. franciscan university and franciscan university to be honest to give you guys an idea what it's like here it's very similar to biola university it's half as big and there's priests and nuns and monks walking around so other than that, I mean, they're playing the same music on guitar, the same songs, right? There? Yes. So this, oh, wow. So at Franciscan has a very, it has a, the charismatic Catholic movement, the same charismatic movement that happened in evangelical Protestant, what happened in the Catholic world too. The Holy Spirit was trying to do something, right? <laughs> so I totally believe that. Um, but that doesn't mean I approve of everything that they do. Um, so, so anyways, I, I approve of it in this sense, and that's what I wanted to say. There's a distinction within Catholic theology that came out of the Second Vatican Council in one of the documents that talks about the difference between religious music, right, and sacred music. Mm. And so religious music would be more like folk music that we get together and sing to praise God and to express in whatever way, right, in our, in our private settings, right, a kind of exuberant if or cultural expression of of religion of your worship of god but then there's sacred music which is meant for the public worship of god that's meant to go with liturgy right that's meant to go with the order that has been laid down in tradition right to carry forth those values where we aren't just sort of expressing our worship of god we're participating in how god is worshiping god you might say how christ is giving himself to god the father we're doing that in the sacred setting. So the music needs to be of a different type and quality. So I would be a 100% fan of people doing praise music, praise and worship, but also say there's the right context and setting for that. And then there's a right context and setting for what I would call sacred music. Yeah. Um, and so when I was in church, I was like constantly criticizing like the praise music, not only the style, not only its performance, but also the theology was vacuous. And that's what you guys I'm sure are referring to. I could literally, on many praise songs, here's my test is, could a Jehovah's Witness sing that? Could a Mormon sing that? And sometimes even could a Muslim sing that? And there's lots of songs where they could sing the same words, right, in their alternate religion. And so I was like, yeah, Wait a minute, something that's a good point. That's a very good point. Logically lacking. If this is so, the content easy, is bug bugging the, you. The content was bugging me. And then the sermons, although they were by very well studied people personnel they were often very milk toast mm. it was like the same message was being repeated every sunday right it was basically the four spiritual laws every sunday some variation of that there was no depth right at all so i'm like the music is no good the sermons are no good the, the aesthetics in the building are no good and literally i just i was like praying to god i well, just want to worship you i just want to work i can't yeah, there's I like gotcha. no everywhere you need beauty in other words you need, need beauty you need sacredness yeah the 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 i'm with you i think i'm with you on most of that i don't remember the sermon i've just just i don't remember i yeah. it seems like they tried to go through the bible and um and then preaching through the bible itself just itself it has challenges that i don't yeah. think people are fully honest about yes you know like one of the challenges is the fact that the Bible, if 
if you look, if you were trying to guess the personality of God, like from the Myers Briggs, <laughs> you know, is God one of these that has a list? You know, yeah. Just read the old Testament. It's so chaotic. What is going on? Just try to read Isaiah. Yeah. You know, and it's like thirty-nine to forty, and you're like. Yep. What is going on here? You didn't tell me, you know, yeah. it's not like God is saying, by the way, let's pause in here and re- just, you know, remember where we've come here, let's yeah. just, uh, you know, hit, exactly. hit our bullet list. There's, there's no bullet lists that remind it, it summarize everything. So anyway, but, um, uh, so that's the challenge, but the, the form of the music, uh, and yeah. I'm not just talking about grace. Okay. I'm, I'm not talking about grace EV free. I'm talking about just generally speaking. Yeah. Actually, I'm not even mainly talking about grace, but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, no disrespect to those guys. No, absolutely. Um, and that's why I tried to make that distinction. Yeah, you did. You did very, very I would well. I characterize myself as very ecumenical. In yeah, yeah, sense. sure. But the building. Yes. What is up with our buildings? I mean, we, we rent out from the uh, First Methodist Church that's been here yeah. since 1923 or something like that. Yeah. And I went into the, uh, I, I popped over there um, during their service. I'd never done this before. I'd never been in their sanctuary before, but I just thought, what the heck? A couple of weeks ago, went in there and I sat in the back and I just loved the sanctuary, the sanctuary, yeah. these vaulted ceilings, stained glass, yeah. the choir was up there. There are certain things that I could take or leave, but the, what I loved about it was that they were more intentional about connecting our, my mind and the attendant mind, attendees mind with a, the past, Bingo. not just with me and what I'm feeling right there in Southern California at the moment, which is kind of like that folk thing, like the sunshine on my shoulder, you know, what are we in big Sur or something? You know, just, <laughs> Oh, there's Joan Baez. How you, how you doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's it, it's a it's a tradition, and so it gets you. It's easier to get your mind off yourself and onto the things of God because you're like, whoa, this is a huge tradition. Like, you know, I'll put well, on two thousand years here, just after Christ, and then there's one even before that. Yeah. And so, but, but the music, I could not stand any church that has the band in the front, and it, I feel like I'm at a concert. I just cannot stand it. And what attracted me to the vine in the vine, Michael Swanson's where I'm at now, um, was that the, the band, the people, the musicians were over to the side. Yes. Yes. And it's like, it's almost like you had to strain to see them. Where are they? They're over there. And right in front was the cross. Yes. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, totally makes sense. And there were candles and it was just, you know, it, it was uh, still a crappy part of the building. We didn't have the nice part, yes. but yes. they've stuck us in one of the office areas, you know, yeah. that they used to have. But anyway, to your point, I mean, I, I, I totally I don't understand the Protestant. Um, some Protestants just ditching the beauty thing. And the sad thing is, is the first Methodists are screwed up about all sorts of other things, but they have the beauty part, right? Yes. I think how we got, how we became like that is a fascinating story to tell at some point, but I wanted to say that, um, yeah, 
So Curtis and I, right, started attending the Blessed Sacrament, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was a major change for me. I remember, you remember- What Adam, was that at? Me too. Placentia. Yeah. Placentia. Placentia, okay. Yeah. And so I, I encountered N.T. Wright because I took a class with Luis, our professor, um, and it was on, I think it was, it was the incarnation and the atonement, I think, or something, or incarnation, maybe, philosophical yeah. theology. And we had a book, it's on my shelf over here, um, and, it, and there was an, a chapter by N.T. Wright. And I read that, and all of a sudden, I had like a, like a, a moment of insight, like what? It was called the self-understanding of Jesus. I was like, wow, that's fascinating. What a concept. Yeah, I started following (laughs) all the footnotes and then I got like obsessed with N.T. Wright. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought, wow, like I he sort of he sort of re-enchanted me with theology. And he that happened at Biola. That happened at Biola. And and a lot of people don't know who Deweese is. That's code for Biola. Yes. (laughs) And so that and then I got and then I actually added a New Testament master's degree. Um, which I didn't quite finish, um, but I did. That's where I studied with Clint Arnold and these other guys that were awesome, and I learned a lot from them. So to me, New Testament theology, right, or biblical theology more broadly, I thought this this has something going for it, right? And especially in this kind of way that Wright is approaching it, mm-hmm. um, because all of a yeah. sudden I had a it was I had the the narrative understanding, if I can use that phrase, of the Bible. So like the Old Testament, the things that happen yeah. in history in the flow have a meaning. He, he takes that seriously. Yeah. Yes. And it's not uh, just for those who don't know, N.T. Wright is a is taught at Oxford for 20 years or so. He's a he was in the Church of England. Uh, I think he's retired now, but he wrote several really important books defending the historical Jesus and taking these people to task that think that crazy things about what Jesus said and did. He's a historian. Yes. So. Um, now he's an Anglican. And so that's I, kind of a halfway house between. And I did an independent study on his first book in that volume when I was at Talbot too. New Testament and the people of God. New Testament and the people of God. Here's a good book. You keep your books. <laughs> Alex, yeah. we got to have you on just to talk about keeping books. <laughs> now, did you keep that book just because of the pictures in it or? Definitely. <laughs> There's a lot of pictures in this guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I threw away pretty much most of my Bibles because I just, I'm, they don't have any pictures. Yeah. It's, it's like, so how cool. am I going to, how am I going to read Revelation <laughs> if I can't see what you're talking about? You, you were, a, you were a lot more thoughtful about your, your jump over to Anglicanism. I, I, uh, I, I got introduced to Lewis by, by Jerry Root. I don't know if you remember him. Oh yeah. Um, awesome guy. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, here's this guy that's, that's introducing concepts of goodness and beauty and, and all this. And he's, he, he loves Jesus and he drinks beer and smokes cigars. I can get on, I can get on board with this. (laughs) Hey, if it's good enough for Lewis, it's good enough for me. That's what I thought. I mean the Tolkien, <laughs> the Tolkien Lewis, and then I later added Chesterton too. Sure. Like, oh yeah, Chesterton's Lewis, awesome. Kind of, the, those guys are like in the mix of like our our real tradition yeah. we, that right, we all right. connect with. That's yeah. right. I got um, a story about about uh, just 
being at Biola, because I'd come from Denver Seminary and there was no kind of issue with alcohol or tobacco, tobacco there, <laughs> at least not that I knew about. But anyway, uh, so I, um, I got to Biola and I was, I was going through the grocery store line with a six pack of beer. And someone from Biola was in front of me who, who was an, I think an acquaintance, I didn't know them very well, but they knew I was at Biola and they, they said, breaking contract, huh? And, and just kind of winking. And yeah. I was like, what do you mean? Well, hold on. What do you, what do you mean <laughs> contract? And Cause I, I just like, I did, apparently I signed it. I didn't even read it. Like I was like, yeah, whatever. Okay. So I got it. Jesus. Scroll down, accept. Yeah. Bible's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. The music sucks and the beauty sucks. I understand. Okay. Got it. I did. I guess that there was so, so they were like, no, I'm kidding. You know? And I'm like, no, no, I'm serious. Tell me what this contract <laughs> thing is. And oh, you can't have alcohol. <laughs> like you can't have alcohol. I had been in the Navy. I was a veteran. I was like, I know. I, I, you know, I de de deployed like seven times. And How I can you have deep conversations without a beer? Like, <laughs> it's you know so what? foreign to me. I was like, wait, wait, I was like a Lewis guy. I was like a C.S. Lewis guy. I would like, that's how you think you have a beer. That's and right. You, have a bar you and know what's so funny? It, it, I don't want to become overly serious, but Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton, who I yes. love, I love a lot of what he says. Um, he wrote a book about the West right? And he gave lectures on that, like what's distinctive about, the, about Western civilization. And one of the things that's distinctive about Western civilization is how we use and contributed to the development of wonderful beer, wine, like alcohol yeah. is like a distinctive of Western civilization. And so like these, these, tradi <laughs> these traditions that are teetotalers and these traditions that are getting rid of it are totally anti-traditional. They're like not in conformity with what we've been doing you know, like, what, it's, it's just like some weird cultural conformity thing that happened. Weird. Um, and then the well, biblical, holiness the biblical interpretation. Somehow, yeah. yeah. I mean, apparently alcohol was a real problem in America because we banned it. So, and, and, and we banned it, you know, right around the time women got the right to vote. I'm not saying there's any correlation between those two things, but apparently there was a lot of problems and even men could figure this out they could figure out that they didn't have all their stuff together and it was causing a lot of problems but i was like you know cigars you know i, I don't know it's just it to me it's it's odd because yeah. a lot of people they'll have dennis prager okay this is just curtis you were there yeah they had dennis prager at biola and Biola is a smoke-free campus, right? And Dennis Prager, if you don't know, he smokes cigars. He smokes a cigar every day. He's yeah. like C.S. Lewis, you know, <laughs> over there. I don't think he drinks uh, beer, probably. But anyway, but uh, he's there, and he, like, lights up a cigar right there on campus <laughs> after his talk. And he's like, yeah, you know, let's have a cigar together, you know. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, you could see that the Biola security guards, like, Oh, what do we <laughs> <laughs> what do we do with this Dennis Prager though uh you know uh, I I just enjoyed watching that happen but uh um, those are great moments I I I have Lewis to Lewis wouldn't be welcome on campus I I have to share this Lewis. also when I was in the I went to Biola for my undergrad and when I was there a guy named Brandon Manning uh spoke you guys may have known ragamuffin 
ragamuffin gospel. Yeah. Awesome guy. Um, first thing he does when he, when he gets the microphone, he goes up to speak. He opens up with this. He goes, he goes, I love Jesus, you know, and there's all these cheers and everything going and every, and then he goes, and I love beer. <laughs> and then there was like, Oh, <laughs> what do we do with this guy? Like it was, it was so funny. <laughs> it is weird. Yeah. I'm coming at it. Like you're saying like deal. Catholics don't have a problem with beer and, and cigars. No, like Chesterton said, he said, you know, uh, we should thank God for beer and Burgundy by not drinking too much. Amen. Yeah. Well, you learn fast. Yeah. I mean, if you value your mornings, you learn fast. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All the Epicureans know that, that you can't drink too much because then you have less pleasure over the long haul. That's right. <laughs> We're growing up. Yeah. Part of growing up. Um, so you now... Were you a full-blown Catholic by the time you graduated with your PhD then? Yes. So I, I was at, I, when I first went to, so I went, was at, back at Biolab, I went to the Anglican church because I have N.T. Wright and Adam Johnson, if you remember him. I know Adam. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he went on and I think he has a PhD in theology now. He was working yes. on it. He's at sure Talbot. He's, he's at Talbot okay. now. Yeah. Oh, is he back at, is he at Tory? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. And so, so he said, Hey, why don't you come to the blessed sacrament? And so then I did, and I was, I didn't want to church hop, you know, cause I, I read Lewis's screw tape letters and there's a, they're about like forming a Christianity where we all, because we all like the same things. Right. Don't do that. So there was like a localist kind of commitment to place, you know, kind of thing. And so I said, I'm going to try it for, for, for two weeks. And then I'm going to make a decision to stay in for one year or get out. Right. And so after like week one, I was immediately sold. Like I was in the choir, I was singing beautiful music, right? I met the Freiling, so I, I eventually I lived with yeah, them. Yeah. And, uh, and actually they, they moved to Ohio from California anyways. Um, so yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, so then I was immediately hooked. I was in the Anglican church. I was there for, I became an, I officially became an Anglican. Um, you helped me was, get settled in there. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was great. And, and so I loved it. It was a hospital for my soul. Um, and, and I, God bless those people, all those people back then and, um, wherever oh, they are now. Yeah. And so then I, when I went to St. Louis, I was still an Anglican, but then when I, sh when I started, there wasn't any church like that around. Um, so, and I was already interested in Catholicism. Actually, I was already interested in investigating when I became an Anglican because my best friend who was a theologian in the Franciscan tradition became a Catholic. His name's Jared Goff, mm. um, not the quarterback, but the same name. And, but he was a quarterback in college anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a, a amazing theologian, amazing guy. Um, you should, guys should interview him sometime if you get a chance, but anyways, he, I had hundreds of hours of conversation with him and Aaron Clark. Oh yes. The okay. conversation with Aaron Clark. So that's when I was an Anglican. So when I went to St. Louis, I was already kind of figuring things out. I was like in year four of my discussion. Right. And I went, I started going to a Catholic, um, a Catholic church, which, which was their specialty was doing the traditional Latin mass. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's interesting. So when you, you got there, how long had you, had you been there before you went to this Latin mass? I went to it immediately as a, as a Protestant. Okay. So what, what was that? It, was it just a whim? No, because Jared, because Jared also applied to St. Louis University 
the same year. So I applied Jonathan Reebsman, Aaron Clark, Tedla, like all of us were applying and I prayed for months that we'd all get in and we all got in. Right. And then, and, and so I lived with Jared and his family. Mm. We rented a house together. And so he was doing historical theology at St. Louis university and I was doing philosophy. And so they went to that, that church and it gotcha. was very true. Yeah. The, it was called St. Francis de Sales. Oh, okay. I got it. And, and so they went there and I went there and I was immediately in the choir, the polyphonic choir, the scola that, that did the um, Gregorian chant. And so it wow. was an absolutely, it was like a neo, neo-Gothic German um, architecture, dim wow. lighting, beautiful wood, beautiful, huge, you know, Gothic windows. I mean, it was just amazing. It's from an era in American history where the community used a lot of their money and invested in their church. That's why it was built. There wasn't some just rich donor. It was like the community came together and built these amazing things. What a concept. Yeah. And so they took responsibility and ownership for their own lives. And so, and so it was beautiful. I went there and I, and I was constantly praying and thinking and discussing and arguing um, for a year. Um, and then I became a Catholic and there's lots of topics. I would say it was, it, it to me was, you, you guys, of course, know that when we reason things out, like in science, right, it's not sort of like just deduction, like we have observations and we somehow just deduce scientific theories. It's like we have a theory that's supposed to be a hypothesis. Listen that explains to the science, Alex. Listen yeah. to science. Yes. We're listening to the science over here. So actually, I should add that insight. I said there were three things I learned at Biola. This was a fourth one in Deweese's um, philosophy of science science class very incredibly important class yes i learned what's what's philosophy of science for those who are who want to follow the science yeah so it asks fundamental questions about the nature of science the enterprise of science right the aims of science that science itself cannot investigate because they're about science so it's a philosophical perspective on science the history the enterprise the aims the nature and so Stuff so, that people don't talk about very often who claim exactly, to like, like science. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like the, one of the famous things we learned in that class, you guys remember for sure, is that like there is no clear way, right? There is no essence to what science is. And so the people that are sort of obsessed with science, which we call scientismists, scientism, right, relies on this distinction between, well, there's science and everything it says, and there's all this other stuff that non-science is saying. Give, give two sciences that don't have the same definition exactly. So obviously the hard sciences and the soft sciences, right? Those don't have the exact same definition. Um, and so you got physics, you know, versus say psychology. Um, and those are not easily put into the same category. And then of course, scientists want to accept that history is knowledge, right? And so so they can't, we can't neatly history, say history tells us that yeah. history is knowledge. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, so if we don't have this clear distinction, demarcation between science and non-science, we can't have this sort of um, epistemology that only knowledge, only scientific stuff is knowledge and the stuff that ain't scientific ain't knowledge. We can't do that move anymore. And science can't give you a definition of science. Um, so philosophy has to come in and say, okay, how can that I right there is the, you know, I, there's so many I, nice little sound bites, ironically, in this little interview. I got up just <laughs> so a second. Nice little coffee mug 
because yeah. I was trying to find the I, I've got the the Aquinas lecture by Chisel. Yeah. You know, on yeah. on the problem of the criterion. Yes. I was trying to find it to show it to people, but that's what this is all about. Yeah, totally. And so then so that was one left. But the lesson I was going to get to was that the way that scientific theories work as wholes, like say evolution, right? At least let's say biological evolution with with single common ancestry. Okay, that theory right? Or let's say the theory of general relativity, right? Or some big theory that is now current. Mm-hmm. The way that the way we get evidence for that theory isn't that we just observe things over and over like, like here's a swan and it's white and here's a swan and it's white and here's a swan. So now we know that swans are white. Now, of course, we know there's some that are black, but um, we don't just generalize from just case after case and then we get to a theory, nor do we make a deduction like that we observe these things and necessarily this big truth is the case. It's more like we have a story that fits in all these data points of various sorts. And the story we tell is a big explanation of all these individual data points. And so what we, and it's exactly the way Sherlock Holmes reasons. And everybody kind of knows how that works. You know, the guy shows up in his 221B Baker Street. He's got certain kind of boots on with certain kind of color of mud. And he's got a like Masonic pin on and whatever else. And and Sherlock puts together all these random facts into a single coherent story. And because that story fits all those facts together and illuminates those, right? Then that explanation is a better explanation than Watson's sort of flat-footed explanation. You're referring to the books. You're not referring to the movie. Yeah. I'm referring to the books. You are old school. Also, he's old school. (laughs) So that form of explanation is actually fundamental to human reasoning. Yeah. I don't think that that form of explanation was really um, explicitly discovered until the 19th um, century and then much further in the the 20th century. Um, Even though we rely on that in doing everyday things, biblical interpretation, systematic theology, scientific theories. It's all the form of what we call now inference to the best explanation. Yes. That form of reasoning is the the best explanation. If you're taking notes and still with us. Yes. IBE, get it tattooed on your forearm. And that's what we do. So I remember I mentioned that we have all this structure of beliefs in our head, you know, in our mind, I should rather say. Um, And that it, it's kind of, there's like, it's, it's about many data points and there's kind of a story that that all tells, which is our worldview, um, which has fundamental beliefs and then kind of some other beliefs that are maybe ancillary that we might give up and it wouldn't really change our life. Um, but there's this right. structure or this system and it explains history, the things we experience from day to day, the news, like it has this ability to explain the random data points that we're experiencing in life from lots of different sources, observation, testimony, etc memory. And so what I was getting at is when I was investigating the Catholic church, that's the kind of examination that a a person who's a Christian has like, well, I believe in the incarnation. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the inspiration of like, there's certain data points you accept. And then there's certain things going on in history and certain biblical interpretations and certain, there's now we're starting to populate all these data points. There's like innumerable ones. And we're trying to come up with a kind of explanation of them that makes the most sense of them, right? And so, of course, some of the data points already presuppose the faith, like the incarnation. So it's not a rationalist thing, like you're going to argue from non-faith and be able to prove matters of faith, right? You're starting with certain matters of faith and other things that are in question. You're trying to figure out 
which sort of explanation is the best explanation or which theology you might say is, is best explains the data points. And so that is kind of the way I was thinking of it. And of course, it's so complicated and there's so many bits and pieces for a, a philosopher, a theologian or yeah. intellectualist thought a lot. It gets, it gets pretty complex pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so, so in the end, that was kind of to jump to the quick is to me, it was, it was, even though there were aesthetic things and um, liturgical things and cultural things that I thought were attractive, like those were not my reasons, right? It was, those were data points as part of this yeah. bigger explanation. Um, so I, I think that that, that's sort of the reasons, I mean, the, the structure of how I decided to become a Catholic, but it was in the end, me following the advice of Doug Divett and Dallas Willard, right? Which is whatever, wherever you go, like, you know. Dallas Willard taught at USC for a long yes. time. Yes. Philosophy, philosophy department. Yes. He's like our, our doctor grandfather. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, and I, 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 I love the man, amazing man. God bless him. God rest his soul. Um, and he trained a lot of our professors at Biola, including our mentor, Doug. Um, yeah. And so, so that kind of way came to me and they both gave me the same advice, which is in the end, like you're following Jesus as a person, like you're, you're prayerfully considering everything. There is a kind of, as Catholics say, and Protestants say the same thing, you're encountering Jesus and that's what you're trying to do in all this thinking. Theology is not for the sake of knowing stuff, right? It's for the sake of loving God better. And St. Francis, who is a special patron of mine, right? He said, if study is taking you away from the love of God, then just stop, right? And Willard told me the same thing. He said, if studying the Bible, right, is preventing you from loving Jesus, right, then just stop for a while, right? It's, right. That's what yeah. is the end. That's what is the ultimate thing that we're trying to do is trying to love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, our whole being, and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why, why would someone find the Bible to be an impediment to however you said it, loving God or, or yeah. following Jesus. I think for somebody like me, and you mentioned some clues before us, there's so many puzzles in it. There's so many things that don't make sense, right? For, Maybe it's good, for example, um, things that happen in the old Testament that are kind of the famous criticisms of the old Testament God, certain things that seem immoral, maybe even, you know, like asking for, you know, certain people groups to be slaughtered. Um, you're like, wait and a minute. Do you think that, that that ultimately doesn't make sense? Or do you think on first impression or? I think first impression, it causes problems, right? But then I think ultimately, I think the Bible is a perfectly, you know, coherent, supernatural revelation. Uh, but but it takes it takes some weight, some. And you're saying that as a Catholic, I'm just, I'm trying to, because some people might not know when yeah. you say it, you're a Catholic, um, do, do you believe you're a Christian? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, and so what would you say the, the difference is if you had to uh, pinpoint, uh, it could be a cluster of them or, you know, yeah. uh, a pattern. We've already gotten the aesthetic differences and the, the form of worship. And, and um, I know that folks who actually, even folks who are Catholic would be interested in this, I think, because I think there's a lot of Catholics that don't really understand uh, 
either their own faith or what yes. the difference is exactly with or they don't know how to articulate yeah yeah but i know i would i want to pause there because there's something that i know that, that all of us share in this belief is that there is a super serious problem in the christian culture in the west right with religious education that we are not taught like that willard taught us that this is has to do with knowledge the truth Right. So people are not taught this that grow up and there's so many nominal Catholics, mm -hmm. right? Just like there's so many nominal Protestants. Sure. Right. And there's so many super liberal Protestants and super liberal Catholics that are just doing social justice stuff that their yeah. Christianity isn't dogma. Right. It's not revelation from God about the truth of the, that we're trying to discern and acquire our highest good in. Right. So revelation is disconnected. Right. And now it just becomes a kind of piece of your cultural inheritance. Now it's become co-opted, right, by your nation or your group or your political stance or whatever, right? And it's not a revelation from God himself about our life and our finding our ultimate meaning in life, the ultimate satisfactory thing that we as philosophers are pointing towards. Right. It's not that. And so now that, that's a huge question to me. It's about a really that. good starting point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think you're not that, secular, you, you know, yes. I mean, that right there. I mean, the, just in terms of politics, like yes. how people approach politics, if you believe that, you know, you're you folks in San Francisco or wherever you are, if you believe that there is no God and we're just making shit up, basically, yes. I, mean, yeah. I mean, not all atheists believe that. True. There's Thomas, friendly like Thomas Nagel, for example, but. But there, there's there's some people that believe that that the world is much more mysterious and and interesting than just the natural world, right? But but I'd say if you're a materialist, atheist, um, just I mean Karl Marx, he, that's his worldview, right? It's not shocking that a lot of folks are on the socialist end of that or the totalitarian. It becomes totalitarianism. Um, that's a huge difference between Catholics and how Protestants should be and how Catholics should be Yes, and the secular mindset. Yes. I think that, that to me, something I would love to talk to you guys about sometime is the idea of modernity. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there was this member, Ed Luke. Yes. Remember him? I do remember him. I don't, I didn't know him very well. Korean, Canadian, Korean, um, Anyways, so he gave me this book. Um, Does it have pictures in it? We have the modern world. Okay. By who? Craig M. Gay. Okay. So I'm trying to not get the reflection out so you can see it. Okay. I see it. Yep. Uh, and okay. the subtitle of this book is, or why it's tempting to live as if God does not exist. Yeah. In other words, what, that's what he defines as practical atheism. Yeah living as if there's no God yeah. says this infects our modern world, right? Because it's what I call to my students. So people think systemic racism is a problem and it is a problem to some degree. Um, but to me, the real problem is systemic atheism, mm. that our cultural institutions, our technological institutions, our economic institutions, our political institutions, our educational institutions are structured in a way that believing in God is irrelevant to what's happening. So there's that's not the way it was set up. No, it wasn't. And so we as Christians in this country that, that affirm there is a God that we, we are theists, right? 
we are tempted to live as if it doesn't matter, right? So we'll go on saying individually we're theists, but then we're actually just conforming to all these institutional structures. And so we're not really living the Christian life. The Christian life is to not be conformed to the ways of the world. The ways of the world are interpretations of human affairs where God doesn't exist. It's an atheistic interpretation of human affairs. We can see this obviously in science. We learned this at Talbot, right? That yeah. science, you can't be a good scientist unless you go into your science um, supposing there's no God, just at least so you can do science. Then you go back and believe there's God. You can't bring in that assumption because that's God at the gaps. That's your rational, right? That's a violation of so-called methodological naturalism, right? Yeah, I mean, so, Alex, what a challenge you, you have discussing this in this current context where a lot of my students would say the major problem with science actually is just that there's so many white people. Yeah. And that's the level they're looking at is yeah. skin deep. Yeah. So I think what's happened with, with wokeism, right. in this sort of identity politics is I think there's some, you define wokeism. How do you find define that? If, I mean, just to, you know, so that we can follow what you're saying. I mean, I would, I would, I don't, I would characterize it roughly, right. As kind of progressivism on steroids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how would you define progressivism? It, it, it is kind of an obsession with equality, right. A kind of egalitarian obsession, right. That sees inequalities. And whenever there's inequalities, there's a suspicion that that's unjust. The co- there's an assumption about the cause. Yes, right. And so if, if white people have more money than people that aren't white, that's because of something unjust or immoral in society or the structures, right? Or if one person wants to, to, to be a, a woman in a male, man's body, whatever that's supposed to mean, if they want to do that, right? Well, then, it, and we can't tell them not to because then we're treating them unequally, right? right. So now what I think is we're now getting to, I think the fundamental political philosophical problem going on underneath wokeism, which I think is the kind of liberal paradigm, right? Um, that individual freedom or the autonomous pursuit of our own individual good, right? Is the fundamental political value that we're pursuing, whether we're right-wing or left-wing, whether we're economically right or left or politically right or left. So I, I, am, I would call myself a post-liberal, right? Because I think that project is causing problems all over the place, right? Although I am very much, you know, I'm a registered Republican, you know, I voted for Trump twice, right? I think that his policy- Edit that out, don't worry. Yeah, you can edit that out, that's fine. Um, Not really. Are you tenured yet? Was that? Yes, I'm tenured. We don't censor here. I am tenured. So my point is, is that- I didn't know that, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. So policy, policy questions to me, must be answered because we have to do things, right? We yeah. can't we can't wait for theory to get to get caught up and get rid of all its errors to be doing things, but we still should be working on that. Yeah. So yeah. when I'm working on that, I, I'm involved with a think tank called New Polity, right? And so I'm a fellow of New Polity. I've done podcasts with them, hey, right? Hey, write that down. New Polity? Yes, New Polity. Okay. What's the and website? So, the website is newpolity.com. Well, we'll link. Do you want us to link that? Sure, if you want to. That's great. Love it. Link and I would encourage you to link. Yeah, I would love it if you guys would contribute to I'd that. Love to do that. Um, 
and and you're going to find things that you disagree with, right? Because it's it's this kind of post it's a post liberal think tank. Yeah. So there's going to be there's going to be post liberals, which if you know that term or that what that means, there's lots of people that though they are right wing in many ways, like abortion's horribly evil, right? And that you know atheism is systemic, right? They're going to critique capitalism, for example, right? And that's going to ruffle some typical right-wing conservatives, even though these people are paleo-conservatives usually, right? So, goes, yeah. yeah, and so there's kind of, I, I think anyways, that there's a kind of political realignment happening. Yeah. Um, so take, for example, Steve Bannon's War Room, his podcast, and I tune into that sometimes. I've heard yeah. of it. I, I don't, I've never watched it. He's kind, of, he's kind of a right-wing, um, yeah. some people would characterize him as a, as a, as a, a nationalist authoritarian, <laughs> I don't know if you would accept he's, that. He's a domestic not. terrorist, right? Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a domestic terrorist. I always love when people throw away the, around the word nationalist as they're listening to national public radio. I know. <laughs> so weird. So, so, and they want more funding for that. Yeah, that's right. You know, from where? From Earth? <laughs> no, from the United States, the nation. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so, okay, so my point. So my point is, is on his show, he's got as a regular guest people like Robert, by Earth. Yeah. He's got as a regular guest like Robert F. Kennedy, right? oh, who's cool. a lifelong liberal Democrat. That's cool, yeah. Right? yeah. And he's got guests like Naomi. Wolf. I would love to have him on this one. Yeah. yeah. So and and he recently had, or is going to have, I just heard. So my colleague in the theology department, Scott Hahn, right, mm-hmm. a biblical theologian who founded the St. Paul Center here to do biblical theology, right? And his method is very similar to N.T. Wright's, and I like a lot of what they're doing. But he's going to be on Bannon's War Room. Like I'm like, what? Oh. So like he's getting these people that are not in politically the same camp. Yeah. So he's getting them to talk to talk to each other. Yeah. You know, he's thinking that they have insights into what he's doing with his agenda on the show. So he's getting insights from these people of very different perspectives. Yeah. So, and, and there's a kind of camp for that. And so there's a political realignment. We, we would call it like the kind of new, the populisms that are going on on the right and the left, right. right. Are reacting in certain ways to the typical liberal, um, spectrum if i can characterize it economically you might say on the on the right is kind of capitalism ish things right and on the left is like socialism ish things right and there's a spectrum there from right to left economically and then you know the the political compass like now we put another axis this way right and on the top you have authoritarianism and on the bottom you have libertarianism right so the typical classical liberal or the the the, the right wing libertarian would be on the lower right hand quadrant Right, and they are. What do well, I say? The person that that uh, is very suspicious of government, however well intentioned, government regulation and intervention, planning the economy, yep. telling us how many hours is a full time job and how exactly. how much you, how little you can get paid, minimum wage, all that stuff. Making my dad, making my dad, who's a building contractor, put on um, eight hundred dollars worth of tornado bolts on his house in an area that's never had a tornado. Wow. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's, I was, my dad is kind of in more that side of things. Wow. Right. And I was wisdom raised. Pairs. Wisdom yeah. prepares for the unforeseen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and uncle Sam knows better. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so that side's emphasizing sort of individual freedom in the economic sphere. Now on the left-hand side, but still on the bottom of this compass, right which is kind of the socialism side economically but also on the libertarian side politically 
right, is somebody like Brett Weinstein, right, who calls himself a left libertarian. Yeah. And so they want freedom within the, the social sphere. Yeah. Right? So, so they would be have, but, have yes. sex with whoever you want. Exactly. And uh, make up new definitions of marriage. Yes. But kind of naive about how awesome government is. Yeah. <laughs> in exactly. regulating liberty of contract. The, the legal term I'm just translating for legal people is liberty of contract. So, yeah. Yes. So we have kind of individual liberty on the right and the left. Yeah. Emphasize in our liberal order. So you might say that on the left, we've got liberals and on the right, we have libertarians. Okay. Um, so there's a kind of liberalism in terms of history's liberalism, mm-hmm. right? Is, or classical liberalism. Like, you it's know, a, it's I a little confusing because it is. It is. Use it, the term liberal and they mean non-conservative and yeah. then you so say like, classical liberal and then it yeah. means conservative and you know, no one even knows what conservative means anymore. <laughs> No, and these terms yeah. must be, they must be terms of art. They must yeah, be. Yeah, that's right. You got to stipulate. Yeah. You have to stipulate. And you, and in order to have a discussion altogether, we have to get into the words. And we that's have to right. be fine that's with right. that. That's right. Yeah, that's I right. I think that a lot of times, like when I've had discussions with my fellow conservative Republican Catholics here, and this university is very conservative Republican, there's like a handful of Democrats, I'm guessing. Is there a shooting range on there? Um, there's shooting ranges nearby and there's an advertisement for a shooting range place in the faculty lounge. Okay. I was just testing you. I was just <laughs> testing your proposition. <laughs> Did you get some evidence? Yeah. You, you said there is a flyer and I'm like, well, there you go. There you go. There, um, there's a flyer. So, so um, what I was going to say when I'm having what a country, what a country, what a country. And so you oftentimes get people that um, I think are closet authoritarians, Right. Um, and you and you say something like you try to be critical of the economic system that started that kind of really got in place in the 1800s, like the right. self-regulating international market. Closet, right? closet. The, I, I just had a vision of of Karl Marx going, "I'm out of the closet now, guys. I've got my <laughs> book out. I want you to check it out. It's called. You, you're gonna love this. You're just gonna love this. We, we're gonna change the world." I'm going to start with Russia, work my way through down. Get to Cuba. Yeah, get to Venezuela, get to Cuba, get, make sure you get there. Yeah. Uh, so so I'll, I'll say things like I'll critique that system. Yeah. And I'll call it capitalism because that's what the people were calling it then. Okay. And then people will like these colleagues oftentimes or students will like kind of freak out because the word is attached to a political stance that they're interested in, which they don't know I'm actually very sympathetic with, right? So my point is, is that words that are in politics create reactions because they're attached to what we think we should be doing. Yeah. Right. Um, So they have to kind of come into a space where we, we desperately need philosophy to do politics. Well, we need a space Yes. where we can stipulate terms, we can look at implications, we can consider the development of the term in history, look at who's saying it, right? But we don't have the patience because I think we've become, right, this this country where we're kind of authoritarianism is a problem on the right and the left, right? It's people don't want to discuss things. People don't want to find common ground. People don't believe in the ability of public reason or the, the, the common good is a term that has no operative space, yeah, that's a so problem. It's, cre- 
Yeah, so it's creating a major divide between people that actually might agree. And I'll give you an yeah, example. Yeah, I know, yeah. I'll give it's you an crazy. example. It's crazy, it's crazy. It's sad. Yeah, I have a really good friend of mine and I I, I, I walked around the park with him in, in, for three hours or more. And he's like a, a very much more like the woke side of things and kind of leftist. He, he, is, he claims, he, I mean, he is a professing Christian. He's a Protestant, you know, I'm, and he knows I'm like on the opposite. And I said, well, I said, I want to challenge you here. I think that we agree about way more than you've actually ever thought of before. Right. And I said, for example, and I started talking about all the virtues. And I said, do you think those are really important? Do you think schools should care about those? Do you think those should be present in our debates? Right. Do you think they should be, you know, of interest to our civil society, to our families, to our... Do you think that we should all be doing everything we can to become virtuous? Is that part of the, what, what, what you would agree as part of the common good? And of course he agreed. I'm like, well, okay, so let's start pursuing it. Let's get to it. This is the language we should use, not the language we inherit from sort of popular politics discussions, right? Well, this is an underlying language that where did we get that language from? Our great tradition. And people can agree that part of the common good has our to great be racist tradition, Alex. Yes, our great racist oppressive tradition, right? Um, including, you know, of course, yeah, we well, well, did, did he, so he didn't go there, he didn't say no. our great racist tradition. No, so what was what was stopping him from saying our great racist tradition? Because I mean, how woke is he? I mean, you know what I mean? So he he is yeah, what not are, that woke. Here's how here's the kind of wokeness I see happening and it's, he's an example in my opinion, is he doesn't want to condemn, right, anybody who's trying to find their personal rights and their personal identity. Yeah. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to condemn them or say that's wrong, but he personally, right, for example, with, with gay marriage, he does not want to condemn gay marriage. He does not want to condemn, mm -hmm. I would say, sodomitic acts, because I mean the activities, right? So, some people would say homosexual acts. Well, the people right? don't even know what sodomy is anymore. No, they don't anymore. But, but anyways, um, I'm completely, you know, egalitarian on this point. You know, I don't care whether if you're heterosexual or homosexual, I'm opposed to sodomy. Um, right. Hold on one sec. Or we had to take a, a bathroom break, but yep. you were saying about your woke friend, he's woke in a certain way. Yes. Something about think, gay marriage. Yes. The way in which he is, for, for example, he told me once, he said, you know, I don't, I don't oppose gay marriage politically, but I still think that monogamy, right, heterosexual monogamy, monogamy is the best form of, 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 you know, the best arrangement for this. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to tell them that. And you also meet people like this who say, I'm not going to, you know, protest abortion out in front of a clinic, but I would never, you know, want right. my friends to have abortions or I would never have an abortion. So it's, to me, that is where what I'm calling liberalism. I got right, it. No. deeper idea of individual liberty has kind of this, and you know this from the famous Planned Parenthood Casey case, right? The definition of good that's given, what a disaster, right? What and that to me is, I feel like that's underneath on both sides of the political spectrum. Of course, we Christians radically don't believe that, right? We think there is a good for human beings, and there is a common good, and that that should be part of our political conversation. And we can't just have individual liberty sort of meeting it out kind of more economically left or economically right. That can't be fundamental. That's right. right. Well, and what so causes the, 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 the problems with the conversation part? Because I thought that was the most 
really, uh, at least for this conversation, I, I thought that was the most pressing thing that stood out to me from yeah. what you're saying is, is it's about conversations that are not happening. Yes. And because and, we don't have the words anymore, we don't use the right words. It's literally that simple. If we learned the virtue yeah. of nice words to describe things, we would be describing each other's characters in ways that we would want people to describe it. I want people to, my friends tell me where I have bad habits or vices. I want those words because then when I, when I do an examination of conscience, I know about myself from a moral point of view yeah. and simply want the other words that are about the traits that we need to enforce or the traits that we really love in somebody. Right. So where I might disagree with, you know, say um, a, a Brett Weinstein, right on maybe certain issues i i think he's brave and i'm glad he's doing what he's doing with his dark horse podcast and i get a lot of benefit out of what he and his wife are doing on that show and i think i applaud them right for their bravery right and their wisdom to address these issues in this way now it doesn't mean i agree with those who don't know who that is that's the guy that was in oregon i think yes fired or or he quit yes he was a tenured guy and the woke the woke crowd came after him yes exactly well yeah i in california the California, I, I've been, I've taught for over 15 years on California campuses, K through 12, private, public, yeah. and in the community colleges, the private schools and a, a range of so-called liberal to conservative private schools and on big state universities and 185 courses over, over that time at 11 schools. Wow. So I have a very broad range, pretty good sample in Amazing. what I call Los Angeles. Yeah. And um, that's what I notice is my job, I feel like is, is just get conversations happening in my classroom and yes. people are scared. Yes. They're scared. And I've noticed that political conversations out here Democrats don't usually lead with we I'm a I am a Democrat. Uh, They they always lead with the moral language. So it's a kind of the opposite point you were. So it's interesting to see what you're going to say about this, because they they what I what drives me nuts about Democrats out here is they they will couch everything in moral language Mm -hmm. as a way to shut down conversation, actually. Absolutely. And, and so I'll, so one of the techniques I've employed just to survive out here, and I come to kind of think it might be valuable is I just say, yeah, you're, you're just a Democrat. That's just code for your Democrat. And you just need to admit that. And, and this is about Democrat versus Republicans. You don't like me because I'm a Republican. Yeah. And they'll always count as no, no, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a deeper moral reality I'm getting to, you know, it's like, well, you know, you're not getting at a moral reality. You are a hack for the democratic party. That's what you're doing. It, I think what, that's I agree. what the conversation is. I know. I agree that that happens. And what the way I put it, connect us with, with something else we said is I said that I think what's going on is people are not philosophical anymore. So that means yeah. they're ideological. And okay. so if they're Christians, they're fideists. Right. If they're Republicans that aren't Christians, then they have some sort of ideology. Let's call that classical liberalism or something. Right. That is fundamentally their their basic worldview. Right. And it because it's a, a place where faith should be, where God, right, belief in immortality of the soul. And so our choices make a huge difference. Like 
those pieces should be there, but now there's this religious vacuum, right? And it's filled with something. That's why they have the language. It's not just moral language. It's literally religious language. I am a heretic, right? That, that's the language of like, I'm a racist, I'm a domestic terrorist, right? I'm xenophobic. Like these right. things are language, like I'm on the outs. I'm not in this community. I should be an exile of society, right? Because I'm not in the group, right? It's the language of religious membership and religious exclusion. Yes. So it's fundamentally religious. And, and so something I want to talk about at some point is this, this book, Craig Gay, who's an evangelical conservative sociologist, he brings up this thing that sociologists call the grave digger hypothesis. Have you heard of this? No. So the grave digger hypothesis is, is the idea that, that something in the Protestant Reformation, some, some things that, that happened at that time in those places, sowed the seeds of the destruction of Protestantism. And that is a sociological um, thesis. Right. And so this guy himself like accepts that thesis. So he says, we Protestants need to go back to our fundamental theology again and figure out what, what are we believing? Because in other words, something theological happened. Right. Um, and maybe something unintended theological happened and it, and it created a, a conditions for what he calls the modern world, which is ultimately this sort of practical atheism, which of course, none of the reformers would ever dream of. Right. It was an unintended consequence of yeah. something happening. That's a really that's that's right. interesting. I, I, I'm now I'm remembering conversations that you and I've had. Yeah. Back in the day yeah. about about you know, that the very, a very similar thing. The idea of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yes. Maybe maybe there was something to the way things were done properly that Luther was actually trying to to to, to reinvigorate, you know, yeah. Um, and he just became the poster child at, yeah. the, at the outset, yeah. uh, though, you know, later his angst kind of got to him. But yeah, that's that's fascinating. Here's I like that. There's something to that. Yeah. Here's something that I would like to challenge you guys with. And I would love to have a conversation sometime about this is I think there's a lot of people. I remember when Aaron Clark and I were having conversations back at Talbot. I remember sitting in the parking lot of some coffee shop. I forget. We went one, one on Imperial Drive. Um I forget the name of it even, but we were sitting in the parking lot. And we, yeah, no, it wasn't Starbucks. Starbucks. Yeah. Oh, uh, we, oh um, um, it's a grind or something. Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Over there on La Mirada Boulevard. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. And no, that's so, on beach. That's That was on beach. and Beach. Uh, beach and, Boulevard. And Imperial. Uh, yeah. Imperial. yeah. There you go. Yeah. And so we not, were sitting. It's not there anymore. It's a Jersey oh. monks now. Oh, okay. So we were, we were sitting in the parking lot and we were talking about this theology book we want to write together. Like we were like planning a systematic theology together. And I remember we were working through all these different issues. And all of a sudden we both kind of like, that's like the Catholic view of salvation. Um, <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's interesting. And then we like kind of went on, right? But what's, like, the, what's the Catholic view of salvation? So the idea, basically the distinction between imputed, right? And infused righteousness. Um, so imputed meaning we're accounted righteousness right. and then we are made righteous, so to speak, our sort of nature has changed, you might say. Um, so that kind of basic distinction. And we were like on the infused side, not the imputed Calvinistic side. Um, now, of course, there's a huge variety within the Protestant world and you don't have to be a Catholic if you think that, but that is but not do, a Calvinistic view. But do Catholics think uh, that um, 
that the salvation is a binary thing or is it has degrees? Yeah. So that's a good question. So that I, I remember I read an article by Rob Coons about justification and I think he was a Lutheran. Then he became a Catholic. Maybe. Texas. Yeah. So anyways, it about, he teaches at university of Texas. It was about yeah. the, the, the idea of justification by faith. Yeah. And so it's kind of like politics in that the terms have a, have a, a life and a meaning mm. with their context, but then outside of a different one, like in another political party, if you will, they have different meanings. Mm-hmm. But like a Catholic will, like if I used to ask this question, sorry, when I was at Western Baptist, and this was a question that was popular at Western Baptist is um, we'd approach a Catholic. I had Catholic friends I grew up with and I'd say, um, you know, are you saved? Yeah. Do you believe you're saved? Right. And that question literally was like nonsense to them because to be saved means to to have been saved, which means you are glorified. Like, and they're like, what? I'm, not, I'm on earth. Like, that doesn't even make sense, you know? <laughs> and so salvation meant basically glorification. Like, that's the end of the process. That's the goal. And so justification wasn't like you're saved or not saved when you're justified. That's like the beginning of this thing that yeah. ends in glorification, yeah. right? And so justification is, is the name of the process going on, which we call when we were evangelical, when I was evangelical, sanctification. Right. right. So we have like justifications, the beginning, sanctification. Protestants have a legal, a legal way of looking at it. It's, yeah. very, it's actually very Jewish. Yeah. Uh, ironically, <laughs> because, because it's like, just tell me the end. Did you win the case? Did you win? Did the judge to say you won? And then they go there. We're on appeal. And then no, what the ultimate resolution was is we won at the Supreme court and uh, yeah, we won. We won. I'm justified. I'm saved. Yes. Um, and uh, over. what are we going to do now? Yeah, exactly. Now what? Uh, does do? I don't know. What is there to do? I mean, Go save other people. Get other people saved. Exactly. Um, and so, so there is a legal element that has to be understood in Scripture. I mean, what? How do we? That's where right anti rights kind of stuff started to fill out things for me, because he comes he comes against kind of the the Lutheran assumptions that are in the interpretation of Paul and throws those into question in a certain way. So, anyways, my point was, I realized that on a lot of positions, I already had like. Catholic views before I knew they were even Catholic. That's because when I started out as a Protestant, I didn't start out studying and believing what the magisterial reformer said, right? I just kind of got into Christianity and there were certain pieces and parts of Christianity that I got involved with like midway. Yes. And so what I think, so I have a name for a lot of these sort of Protestants. I call them pre-Catholics. Yeah. (laughs) Because they, they don't, they, they aren't rejecting Catholicism. Right. And they don't even know what the magisterial reformers were saying when they rejected Catholicism. And so a lot of them actually believe consistent things with Catholic theology to a degree. Yes. Yeah. So instead of pre-K, it's like pre-C, right? Yeah, like pre-C. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so then so then my challenge is is okay, so show me where show me where you must where you can't be Catholic. And then what often happens in the conversations, and you've had these conversations, I'm sure, many times, is is people think that Catholics believe something that they don't actually believe. Yes. Okay. So then you're kind of like trying to go, you know, what do Catholics actually think? And then it gets really kind of complex because there's a long conversation that's been going on. Um, And so, so then the people that are honest are like, wow, this is really complicated. Right. 
how do I figure out what Catholics actually believe? Because you can't just go pull Catholics. You're not going to get what Catholics believe by pulling Catholics. Right. And neither will you get that by figuring out what by pulling Protestants. Protestants is hugely diverse. Nor, nor, nor with politics. Nor with politics. You have that, to dig that's, down that's into sources. You that's have to right. get into sources if you want to get clear. That's right. So then, so then the challenge becomes sort of like, do I, do I, so I, I'm a Protestant, right? At this point, and when I'm with, with, with Aaron. And so then I'm like, wait a minute, like, how Catholic Is am I? Is Aaron Catholic I, yet? Because I know Aaron converted. No, he did convert too. He, he, he wasn't Catholic then. And so like, when, then we're like looking back into history to see, wow, how many of these things do I believe? Right. Kind of going backwards in time. Right. But, but then of course, the big challenge that I think that is suppose you got on the boat in the beginning. Right. And then you start going forward through history. Right. And of course there's a continuity with what do I call it? the historical church. Right. That would be roughly like the Anglicans, the, the Orthodox and the Catholics and kind of trace themselves back through apostolic succession and liturgical practices. So there's kind of a continuity going backwards in time and similarly forward, right? You might say, okay, at what point do I get off and join one of those other streams? Oh, I see. Yeah. So then you're going forward in history and then you have to justify getting off the boat at a certain place. Right. I see what you're saying. See, and so that to me is the big challenge. Those who, who have, have not a, had church history might have a hard time following what uh, Dr. Plato just said, but because it's sometimes it's hard to, I mean, I grew up, sorry, Curtis, I know you have, don't, don't forget your thought. I just want to say really quick that the, actually, you know, Curtis, why don't you, I don't want you to lose your thought. I think I'll remember mine. So go ahead. I, I, I was fine either way, but, but this, this uh question as far as because you know i've now now i'm i've been anglican now for quite a while and you you know i mean i think you would say that anglican is still catholic though not roman catholic right Um, yeah in a sense yeah london catholic the interesting thing that that i've well anglo-catholic or anglican catholic um but it's uh, the interesting thing that i learned from our bishop was about the history of the anglican church is that when August, I believe it was Augustine of Hippo, uh, was sent by Rome to go and evangelize uh, the, this place called England, this little island, um, and he got there and went, uh, "There's nothing to do. The church yeah. is already here." Already been done. And Rome apparently didn't know about this. So how did that happen? You know, it was a, it was a quandary at the time. Yeah. So, in, in a sense, there's no getting off on that line. It seems to me. You know what I mean? It seems yeah. like they were just parallel things going along. Yes. And how do you, how do you handle, I mean, how do you, I don't know, how do you address that? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a really good question. And I remember when I was Anglican at Blessed Sacrament, I talked to yeah. Father Dave, David about that. Mm. Uh, and, and he kind of had the, the sort of, it's called branch theory, which I know, you know, Curtis, yeah, yeah. you know of it, Lucas, um, that sort of, there's this kind of tree going along. And then when the reformation happens, right? It kind of branches. It's like kind of, and so the, yeah, before yeah. that church history was taught to me. Yeah. That's how it was taught. Yeah. Yeah. But I took church history at Wayland Baptist in Hawaii as an undergrad. And then I, I took it again in seminary. Yeah. Uh, so that's how it was kind of taught. Yeah. And, and I so- went to Protestant schools and they taught it as if they, I mean, we read Justo Gonzalez's story of Christianity as an right, right, yeah, 
and we read, uh, well, we read Bruce Shelley because he was the professor. <laughs> Bruce Shelley taught it, taught his own book, Church History and Playing Language. Shocker yeah. why he would use his own book. But yeah. uh, and Scott Wenig, who was one of the most fantastic teachers I've ever had, um, used various sources. But, you know, yeah. So I remember like I, I remember when I was investigating the Catholic Church, I, I read Philip Schaff. Right. And he kind of, you know, starts with. And, and traces the Protestant line back through different groups, right? Going back in time. So then you get back. So there's some branch and everybody's trying to get back, right? Right. That's true. But but some of the people in the branches that he traces back were at the time condemned as heretics. Yes. Right. And so that branch give is- like, Give an example. Like the Albigensians. Mm. He, that's a really important what community. Did they, what did they believe? You know what? I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the word and I don't remember thinking yeah. I agreed with them. Yeah. I have and to look it up. So he chooses that group as one of the branches that connects back. Oh, okay. But what the branch theory is saying is at the Protestant Reformation, right? You have a branching between sort of, now I don't know how they deal with Orthodox. Maybe that happened before, but that it it's impossible to tell which one's heretical at that time. So they're like saying that this branching the branches are not heretical. None of them are heretical, right? Okay, that so makes the sense. Branch theories is like, well, Catholics one branch, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox is another branch, and right. the Anglican Church is another branch, and none of them are like heretical in any strong sense. They're all like Orthodox, and just this unfortunate right. thing that happened, right? And so they're kind of all held together in this dynamic tension. That's how I understood branch theory went from Father David. Right, right. Um, and so, so that branch, branch theory is as opposed to what. As opposed to this Philip Schaff thing, which is that at the time that was identified as heretical branch. So that that doesn't count as a legitimate branch now. Oh, I see. It was heretical at that time. But now because the Reformation was complicated, right, it's not so obvious which one is the church anymore. Mm -hmm. They're all the church. They're just different branches of the church. But like the Albigensians, that wasn't the church. The Arians, that wasn't the church. The Nestorians, that wasn't the church. And so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. So these at the time were identified as not branches of Christianity. Right. So those branches were, let's say, cut off to use the analogy. Yes. Stick with the metaphor. They're heretical. Yeah. They're heretical. That's, that's, yeah. You got to struggle through church history at some point. You, other, you got to struggle through this really basic stuff of what's yes. a heresy, what's not a heresy. Yes. You know, and, I remember Hil Hilaire Belloc. Hilaire Belloc, um, he said that, you know, you can't understand Western history unless you understand the concept of heresy, right? And heresy doesn't mean the other person's a bad person, right? Or something like that. It means some relationship of what they're believing and teaching to the, the, the deposit of faith or the, the set of things that are taken to be, right? Authentic teaching that goes all the way back. And they're like taking a piece out or adding a piece in so it doesn't fit. It's not compatible or consistent with that set. Right, um, right. You got to know what consistency is. A lot, of my, a lot of my students don't know how to define that term, and it's pretty easy to define, I think, actually. I mean, <laughs> okay. they know what it is. Obviously, you know what a consistency is, but they can't, like... Yeah. That We don't have a culture where that's on the tip of your tongue, and you can easily... We don't have a higher education culture where that's nurtured, where you can go, what's, cons what's inconsistency? Yeah. Um, yeah people have a really hard time like seeing that a logical construct yeah. and how, Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. You know? And then yeah. they go to another context and they're exactly the opposite. 
yeah. and they're they're not seeing any incongruity or inconsistency or they can't think, see it i think to answer your question curtis the only way to answer that question in my view is um it, it's a question not about what is being taught but a question of who is doing the teaching mm. Right. So it's ultimately a question of the nature of the authority involved in the church. Right. And of course, all those all those groups think there's authority in the, in the, the church, the nature of the authority. Yes. yes. Okay. And so what so it's not it's it's I guess it's both the nature of the authority and who has it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course. determining determining that is not a question of just considering propositions. It, it involves that. Right. It's like it's like it's like considering who is a trustworthy witness on a stand or something. Right, right. Like there's issues of character and history and psychology. And that's the kind of stuff that traditional right. Catholic apologetics would call like the marks of credibility of this testifier, which is the church. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that can only be a matter of prudence in the mind of the person investigating it from the outside. It's not a matter of theoretical reasoning, deducing things. It can't be that. That to me is a rationalist project that actually many Catholics fell into in the early 20th century. You can't deduce the authority of the church. It, it's something you recognize by considering lots of things in history. Inference to the best explanation? Yes, it's, it's that form of reasoning about a testifier, right? So and so back to hour one of this yes. three hour <laughs> conversation. Yeah. So it can't be deduced. It can't be purely rational. It, it has to do with the weight of the importance and significance of many factors in relationship to each other in a hierarchy of values. Sometimes you know, called adaptive reasoning. That, yes, that really speaking. that really kind of maps onto. I mean, you're you're talking about a an apologetic. Yes. For for Rome, in a sense. Yes. Um, because because as we know, there's Christians who who. We'll, we'll have conversations with non-Christians who are like, oh, I could never be a Christian because that guy is a jerk yes. or that guy does this. So all Christians are. And that's like what you're saying. It's like the same thing it, with, it, with Republicans, too. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what he tweeted? So I can't be a Republican. Right. Exactly. It's just it's like the, this is what a rational thinking is pure prejudice. That's the operation. It's not yes. reason. pure prejudice. That's right. And so I think a, a yeah, these anti-philosophical things also happen like in Republican areas. Like, I mean, where yeah, the, yeah. where the, the catchphrases instead of racism are, you know, the catchwords are like, are you're against freedom. You're not, you know, but, but it's mm -hmm. just as low grade, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's not really thinking it's cliche stuff. That's exactly the same. I, yeah. Dan Crenshaw has a really great podcast on this um, where he dissects the January 6th thing that happened. The hoax. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, he, he says, you know, there's a certain kind of Republican that sa says, we got to fight. We got to fight. We got to fight. You got to really be careful how now how you say that after january yes, 6th absolutely but but um he says in that podcast and he says at other places he just had another one where it was a democrat congressman who who changed parties this is like i yeah. think last week he had him on or two weeks ago okay uh this guy from new jersey just changed parties to republican and anyway he had him on they were talking about um how you have to persuade people what a concept and i i know people that hate 
Dan Crenshaw. Wow. Be, on our side because yeah. he thinks too much. Yeah. <laughs> and he wants to try to persuade people. And he looks at the true fight really is persuasion. You have to persuade people. Yeah. This guy became a Republican because he was persuaded. He wasn't, yes. you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't by Twitter. It wasn't by, you know, slogans. It, right. was, it was by the kind of abductive full orbed. Yes. Fact-based, right. There's certain yeah. facts that, I mean, like to me with the whole COVID pandemic, like how do we understand that? I was having a conversation with my best friends here. We have slightly different angles on this whole narrative, right? So I kind of, I remember when it first started, um, I wanted to know more about the infection fatality That's problem. Rate. That's our, you already have the problem. You wanted yeah. to know more. I know. <laughs> shut up. Put the mask on and shut up. Exactly. Follow the science. But that yeah. You can't be controlled when you do that. Stop I, it. So, I already, yeah. So, so this was super more. early, super early in the pandemic. Like everybody's talking about the, the case fatality rate. Yep. Versus the infection fatality rate. And they were, they were right away too. Generating, generating expectations. And of course, in the beginning, when we didn't know anything, the first two weeks, I was like, oh shit, like society's going to be overrun. Look what's happening in New York. Look what's happening in Italy. Like, right. so you just go with the data you've got, the facts that are presented or supposed facts. I mean, Italy and New York is maybe there's a, there's an optic there that needs to be discussed. But anyway, um, the point <laughs> is it looked like this is unknown. This could overrun our system. We can't have that because that's going to make massive side effects. And so then I was like, wait a minute, like how deadly is the actual virus? Like if I got that, right. what are my chances I'm going to die? And if I give that to somebody else who's my, in my age or my kids, are they going to die? So I need to know the infection fatality rate. And I remember I found on the blogosphere or on the YouTube or something, Jay Bhattacharya, right? Who was one of the, one of the founders of the Great Barrington Declaration, which I signed in October, right? And, and he's a Stanford researcher, right? He has PhD in economics and he's like a scientist of, of high caliber in this area, like one of the highest. He's an expert, we'd say. I think I remember watching something he did in April or something. Yeah, it was very that. early on. And very he's, early. this is the infection fatality rate. And it was super low, right? And then he said, what, what's crazy is the stratification of the in, in age brackets, right? There's a thousand fold greater danger, right? On the upper end from the lower ends. It's crazy. The yeah. difference is different than anything we've, we've ever experienced in terms of virology. So you don't care about grandma. Yeah. And so, so, so then I was like, wow, that made me just think differently. That was a fact that was established by science that happened early on that no matter what the narrative did after that, I couldn't just ignore that. No. And then I checked I in halfway through to check that study had been repeated 50 times in the world. And now there's a hundred of them, which confirm over and over and over again, this pattern. And so I was like, that's indisputable. That's an indisputable. It, it's unreasonable for me to dispute that scientific finding. Is it logically possible? Sure, it's logically possible. Rocks can think. Who cares? Logical possibility is cheap, right? So is it probable? Zero, right? So, okay. So that was a fact that I had to then Pretty repeat. Low, yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is when I assess the narrative and, I, and the right. narrative started to take shape, there were certain facts that I couldn't, I couldn't dislodge from my memory. So I had to interpret the right narrative based on facts. 
Now very I agree. Similar, very similar to my experience, which is why yeah. I, I looked at everybody like they were crazy. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so I had California. California. I, mean, I, would, I would try to argue that it would be difficult to pull out all the abductive data points at one sure. moment. Absolutely. But I, would, I think that the dissident narrative in its broad outlines is, is much more probable, yeah. right? And I think that the, the other narrative, right, the, the conventional narrative, let's say the Fauci narrative, right, roughly, that to me is implausible from a, from a reasonable point of view. I'm trying, I'm trying to be impartial. I did the whole time. I'm like, right. I don't think you can explain that. It, no. and, and so my point is, is that there are facts that can be part of our narrative. It's not pure narrative. Yes. Right? Facts are not always just purely interpret facts. Like, there are things that we arrived at by proper understanding of the method in that area. And now we have to take that into account when we're deciding our narrative. Mm -hmm. So we can fact, we can base our narratives in facts, even if many facts that we get are somewhat interpreted, not all of them are. That one wasn't. Yeah. And then the sledgehammer approach, it just didn't fit with that. No. Crushing small businesses. What, what does that have to do with saving lives? I mean, I think we look back on that. I mean, we should look back on that. Well, we should have looked at the time, you know, yeah. at what we were doing. I remember uh, my favorite used bookstore was shut down in yeah. Fullerton here called Half Off Books. It used mm. to be up in Whittier. Yeah. And um, they're right across the street from Pilgrim's Coffee, uh, which was uh, that Pilgrim's Coffee guy would bring coffee to the church. Our church was shut down. And uh, our church is dying because of that, basically. And I, I mean, people still wear masks at our church. It, it just, There's no reason. You go to someone's home, the same people. You go to somebody's home, everybody has their masks off. I know. But it, there's some kind of weird thing when once it's in the church, they in the sanctuary, yep. they put the, it's like this unthinking thing. And, and half the people will pull it down to talk to you. It's like, you don't really believe. Can you just like, look at what your actions are? You don't really believe this. Did you <laughs> ever? I don't know. But, but, um, you know, and they were shut down the, the, the bookstore. And I thought these people are really vulnerable there's not a margin on used dictionaries let's just face it or you know Absolutely. uh you know magnum pi dvds you yeah. know i mean they're not making a killing on this stuff right although i personally would buy the magnum pi dvds yeah. you know As I would. Um, but but yeah i mean to, just to see the stupid stuff they had to do to to reopen like the, and the fear in their eyes like i it's couldn't terrible. tell if it was the fear like with the plexiglass and fear it's and they're they're beep, beep, they're they're checking out my you know john denver album that i just bought a record i'm not sure if it's going to play but i'm buying it for a dollar and they're they're touching it and then they give it back to me and i'm like yeah I, it's it's just so weird like I, i'm going around touching the books and they they were shut down again they were shut down twice and they were afraid. I, I couldn't tell if it was they were afraid of the virus or they were afraid of getting shut down. Like it's, you just both. couldn't tell. Yeah, both. both. I, I think that fear, if we haven't thought clearly and we don't have good reasons for and we don't have convictions, then there's nothing else for us to do against fear. 
right? You just follow your, your instincts, which is like, that's bad, avoid, right? And so that's sort of, what do I say? Limbic system takes over, right? Uh, Alex, can, have we, convictions. can yeah. we get a, can we go a little bit into your, um, just what daily life is like for you? Like, sure. tell us about your campus. Um, did it shut down during the pandemic? The scam? No, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't shut down. It didn't, we did have protocols and lots of way too much testing that was totally unnecessary. Um, there were some dispute among the faculty, but I think that the people that believed in the dissident narrative here, right. Um, that I think that they kind of just kept hoping and I was one of them just kind of kept hoping this would pass, you know, and then like, right. Um, and was so that Dean Crosby guy, was he one of, or I'm sorry, um, John Crosby. Yes. I was you one of them. It seemed to me that John Crosby was not one of the dissident narratives, but I'm sure that he had a, a nuanced take on the conventional narrative. Probably, yeah. But definitely, I mean, he's over 70. His wife is over 70. Like he, he's in, the, and also I found that the generation above us, our parents' generation, have a view of vaccines that's different than, than many of us who are having kids, right? And we have to think carefully about different vaccines and we're like more alert yeah to, to vaccine injury yeah yeah to, to those issues well i think that the uh -huh. stories of vaccine injury travel faster yes uh, because of instagram and other things than it did back then when someone might have a vaccine injury and it just doesn't get reported right absolutely back in the day but yeah. um so what so kind now of they're all lifted now they're all lifted now there aren't any um, restrictions okay now at all and ohio is in, in steubenville especially like you go out and I go to Kroger to get groceries and like, there's a few people that have masks. You know, you know, that makes me want to point out the interesting thing about Kroger here. Um, Kroger, even today has that ma uh, the signs out front they of the masks they required. They say required. We'll be there for a long from, time. From day one, from yeah. day one, I never wore a mask in Kroger yeah. and nobody ever said anything to me. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a different experience than my twin brother in Oregon. Oh yeah. Right? Oh, I'm sure. And you got um, called out. You oh, of course. You had the um, heretic watch crew. Yep. Right. I mean, also, they true. use moral language. They use yeah, moral religious. Language. Yeah, yeah. Selfish son of yeah. a. Yeah. No, it's just that I'm a Republican. Yeah. It was. It was really nasty. Um, yeah. And, and I. I mean. Same in Monterey here when we went up to Monterey. I had a few of those conversations. Yeah. So that, yeah, oh, the difference, uh, Alex, the difference between Orange County and LA was, was oh, very interesting. interesting. Very interesting. I mean, even at 24 hour fitness for a while, but like it would be the same company. Uh, you're this much in LA County. Can you wear a mat? Can you yeah. uh, go across Orange County? So yeah. Alex, tell us about the kind of uh, classes you teach and what. Sure. So we have a core curriculum here. Um, and so it's a liberal arts core curriculum that all the students basically take. There are three philosophy classes that are required of every student with exceptions. Yeah, like professional programs have a few exceptions. But so they are philosophy of the human person or the philosophy of human nature or yeah. philosophical anthropology, as it used to be called. So we call it the philosophy of the human person. Um, the foundation of ethics, right? And then metaphysics. Upper level. Um, so they are all, let's see, 100, 200, 100, 100, 200. Is that right? No. Oh, 100. Ethics is lower? So there is no specified order. 
So, oh, okay. but the numbers are person is 113. Ethics is, um, sorry, metaphysics is 211 and ethics is 212. Oh, okay. So de facto um, person is first. It's de facto freshmen take that first. All of us advise that, but there is no requirements in the books for which one should be first, which I am a critic of that. I think there should be more order to it. Um, but um, that's, well, that's everybody has to take metaphysics. Everybody has to take metaphysics, which okay. we have a natural. I know I teach there. Right? I, it sounds like an awesome place. Please apply. Wow. Um, I taught at Loyola Marymount for over a decade. I taught philosophy of human nature. They called it. Yeah. They, had, they later changed it to philosophical inquiry, which I thought was a mistake. And, yeah. and then uh, at the upper level ethics, but there was no metaphysics requirement the Jesuits required. I thought they should require them. But. They, you know, I was at SLU, which was a, which was a, is a Jesuit. Not Jesuit. And they used to have a very robust philosophical core. And my, my doctoral advisor, Gregory Beabout, um, who's like a McIntyre scholar, a kind of Catholic social teaching um, Kierkegaard, that's, those are his areas. And a very orthodox, serious, devout, Christian Catholic. Um, and he was, he's very involved in, in trying to keep whatever good things were in that tradition as it's been sort of, you know, chopped down over the ages, over the, over the decade. My gosh. But it used to be a glorious curriculum. It's, it's not a glorious curriculum. What accounts for that? I mean, it seems like it's happening the same time what was happening at Loyola. What, why, why are they getting rid of philosophy? There is a, there is a huge, problem in the Catholic university world. Um, and so you, you have all the big Catholic universities like say Notre Dame, right? Georgetown, whatever these loyal American, like these are all Catholic Gonzaga where Doug went, right? Um, they used to have a kind of glorious Catholic tradition, but then in modern times, I'd say around the Land the Lakes conference, I think that was in the sixties, I'm not sure. There was an explicit um, decision to no longer require the theology people to adhere to what the magisterium says. There used to be a kind of check on what theologians were doing, right, based on the, their connection legal, legally and juridically to the magisterium of the church, the official office of teaching. And so that got kind that of- explains separate. a lot of what I was seeing in the theology department. Totally. It got severed. And then the, the liberals- and when I mean that, I mean the theological liberals, which were often the political ones too. Yeah. Um, the ones that fundamentally. Kavanaugh, nope. That's what yeah. I saw when Kavanaugh was getting nominated. Kavanaugh, nope. Totally. So, so these, so these guys had a had a hold before the Second Vatican Council, right? And then the Vatican Council came and they ran with it. Sixty-eight. What yeah. Was Okay. Five to uh, the dates are early sixties. It's over by the by sixty five, I think. So maybe sixty five. Oh, okay. I can't remember the dates exactly. So they got rid of the Latin Mass and all that. Well, well, that was actually that's an interesting point. Um, the they did not actually that was not in the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council did not promulgate right a new liturgy that is separable from the Vatican Council itself. That occurred after the Second Vatican Council. And I think, and this is my view, uh, just as a kind of, you know, um, wannabe theologian and church historian, um, is that, that it's that change, the change of the liturgy, right, and the change in the calendar mm. that I think wreaked havoc. It allowed the liberals 
to take and run and change the culture of Catholicism. It no longer had this, the constraints of the calendar and of the woof, warp and woof of, of liturgical seasons, right? The way that the mass worked. Now you didn't have one set of readings over one year. You had three, a cycle of over three years of readings, right? And whatever their intention. And somehow was, that, that snowballs into taking out philosophy. I think, I think that it, it disturbed connection to tradition in a certain way. So we yeah. talk about orthopraxis as well as orthodoxy, right? And there's a kind of, there's a kind of feedback loop that should be going on there. And I think when you cut off orthopraxy, the way we've been doing it for a long time, and then you introduce lots of heterodox and even heretical teachings, right? Um, then you get a destabilization. There people left the church in droves, right? And this is at the same time in history where, you know, the book Bowling Alone? I've heard of it. It's about the disappearance of civil society, right? So that is occurring in the second half of the 20th century all over American society. And so the church is, is no exception. The religious orders, right? All those things are being depleted. For example, my brother up in Oregon and Mount Angel, there's a beautiful Benedictine Sisters Abbey, like 1800s architecture, just beautiful orchards. It is just so beautiful. There are six sisters and they're all over 85. And they chose, they explicitly said over a decade ago, I believe, that they are not reproducing their order. They are not recruiting anyone. They decided to die off, right? And wow. so they're- What's gonna happen to that property? I mean, there, there are people, big corporations that wanna buy it and use it for different things. I wish there would be some rich on, entrepreneur that would buy it and make a beautiful school or something beautiful, cultural. Um, I don't have that money. I'm not a rich capitalist. Sounds like a handout to me, yeah. a bunch of handouts. I think it's, I really, really hope it is not. That's my impression of a Republican, rich Republican. It sounds like a handout. Yeah. You know, so, I, I just, it's so refreshing to talk to you, Alex. So yes, what's, what's your favorite, what's your favorite uh, class to teach? Let me jump into that in a second, Luke, because I want to say one more thing about the Catholic university world. I'm, I'm in it, right? Like I'm yeah. at Fiskin University. So we occupy a market niche, if you want to speak that language, right, of, you know, orthodox, um, believing, uh, conservative, you know, um, Catholic university. So we are one of the, like, premier one of those. We only have 2,500 students. So we're half as big as Biola, right? And there's a list of these schools that are on this thing called the Newman Guide, right? So the Newman Guide is some something like, slightly over 20, I don't know the exact number, of these schools that, that teach authentic Catholic doctrine and they care about this and they're what not- other schools are on there, like a couple? Benedictine, Christendom, um, Wyoming Catholic. Um, those I've are heard some. of Wyoming Catholic. Yeah, so these are some that are on that list and they, they are, their faculty, like we, we have the option- of Yeah, we, ha we have the option as philosophers to take, the, take an oath to the magisterium. And all the theologians take an oath to the magisterium. So they voluntarily choose to submit to the teaching authority of the church to constrain their speculation. Uh, and so, so there is a kind of legal juridical claim to be part of a Newman school that something like that. 
like Biola has the, the statement of faith. You know, yeah, I was going to say had a statement of faith. It's a similar thing. Making a claim in culture to stand for orthodoxy, right? I, I would say before it's been destroyed by modernism. Like, um, so the fundamentals, like the to Tory was a fundamentalist, the tradition, like the real ones that wrote right. the big books called the fundamentals, defending Christianity from an evangelical point of view from the, the crazy demythologizers, right? Fundam who fundamentals are good. Yeah. And so there's a similar thing happened in the Catholic world. A parallel thing happened. Gotcha. So you had that group of sort of neo-scholastic people trying to go back to Aquinas and, and, and Bonaventure and kind of scholasticism to fight modernism. That's their attempt, right? Then you had the liberals who were going crazy and there was a fight and that's what gave rise to Vatican II, right? That fight between, we would, let's call them fundamentalist Catholics for, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and, and those are Catholics that agree with the fundamentals of the historical Catholic church, Bingo. but they, they're not involved in politics and they're kind of uh, pulling back from culture. Yes. Or they're trying to, they're trying to keep a foothold in culture oh right? they are okay yes. that would be different than the yeah. fundamentalists right. than on the not in that stuff. yeah so culturally there's a difference you're right because the fundamentalists withdrew from culture yeah so these guys wanted to keep a foothold in culture but resist the force of you know historical critical method that was dissolving right biblical authority and inspiration they wanted to resist that in the same way so there's a is a comparison but you're right there's a dissimilarity there too um but okay. my point is historical yeah. christian dogma they wanted to defend those against the attacks from secularist atheists modernists so it sounds um, like you're fully on board with your institution and you're very happy 100 i i thank god that i was i was applying for jobs and i in my mind i was like practicing to apply for jobs how and many I, jobs did you apply for i only applied for six different jobs i mean and i have did you get any of the other ones or did no, you only one only this one only this one yeah. Did you get this job? I'm just kidding. Um, That's a good question. Actually, there's a funny story there. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it was, I, what happened was I applied at this at, at, when there was an opening. And what happened in the midst of the application process is one of the faculty members was fired or resigned. I can't remember the details. So there's only eight people on the search committee, not nine. Oh, and so okay. I actually tied with another guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so what, what ended up happening in the end is we, we both got a job. Oh, but, okay. Um, but so I didn't like outright win the position. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Well, so, you did get, I did. Position, but, yes. Oh, gotcha. Um, and which class do you like teaching the most? Um, you know, not any of the core, I love all the core classes, but there's another class that I regularly teach called the philosophy of community. Mm. And it's kind of like my version of political philosophy slash Catholic social teaching slash culture, right? It doesn't, it's not a clear topic. Um, and so yeah. that's my favorite class to teach. Because you have most, the most freedom or freedom. Yes, I have freedom to kind of think about and apply an area of my own thinking that I'm really interested in trying to understand, which is this post-liberal Catholic political thought. Mm -hmm. um, and so they all absolutely eat it up. They, they, they understand immediately because they, they know that the individual autonomy, the individualism, all that, that that's empty. And they, they understand the importance of living together in community.
right? They understand the importance of small business, right? They understand the dangers, right, of sort of too much state intervention, if you put it that way. But they also understand that there's a dialogue going on here that, that in a popular level of secular politics is excluding the thing that matters most, which is there is a God. We know that. There is a good. There is an end that we're all living for. Virtue is part of it. And that should all be part of our conversation. And wow. let's get in. And so that's the post-liberal side of things. Yeah. You know, have, have you interacted with Dr. Horner much since you've left? No, I haven't. Because what, what you're talking about sounds a lot like something he's written uh, yeah. with, uh, about moral apologetics and the, the idea mm-hmm. of giving people in culture, uh, uh, opening their eyes to the hope that, 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 that life could be different yes. you know? and that there are people who actually tap into that. And yeah. then it, it's, it's compelling. You know, yes. it sounds like what you're talking about. It's exactly. So That's I was talking awesome. to Doug. I've tried to keep up with Doug. Uh-huh. And he, I mean, he, he was in my wedding. He, he, oh, was, cool. a, he was a groomsman. Oh, um, cool. Doug Guyvet? Doug Guyvet was a groomsman in my wedding. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 you know, have a very close relationship with him. And, and I've tried he's to awesome. keep him through. Yes, he's amazing. Yeah. And, and so I, um, I. He's a brilliant epistemologist too. Yeah. Yes, I remember I lost my train of thought, but now I remember is I had a conversation with him about some of this stuff when it was kind of in seed form. It wasn't yet clear in my mind what I was doing. And he said, oh, that's cultural apologetics. Mm. I was like, oh, and that's exactly what it was. He described that to me. It's what, what you're calling moral apologetics sounds very similar. Yeah, where yeah. we, the, the structures or the institutions or the habits that are embedded in society, right? Yes, uh, are are can convey right theistic or even Christian values or not, and I would say right now they're not. Right. We right. also working on those institutions creates what do I call them plausibility structures for theism and Christianity, and the way we start doing that is how we live in community, how we do business, how we right. right live. We we develop structures of solidarity rather than mere structures of self-interest of an individual seeking to maximize whatever his conception of the good is. That's right. Great. That's right on. Uh, yeah. So I, that's, I really am passionate about that. And, and so that is right on. I, I should talk to Dave at some point. Yeah. And that, that really drives, I'm sorry, just that really drives the whole idea of, of where we're at in our culture with uh, creating, wanting to create or the need to create like dual economy to be able to have an opportunity for good people to kind of push back against what's been happening, you know, pushing against them, basically. Yes. That, that you fit right in that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I remember there's a, a, one of John Paul II's famous encyclical letters that was a major contribution to Catholic social teaching, that string of documents that's called that, was called Centissimus Annus, 100 years after the first one. Right. The first one was by the Pope Leo the 13th. It was called Rerum Navarum. Maybe you guys have read that. Um, and you should read the beginning of that and you would find like a serious ally um, uh, in, in the culture wars in th- this position. We're, look- we're looking for allies. Yes, totally. You're either and, an ally or you're not. Yeah. And so after the after after the collapse, yeah, after the <laughs> after the collapse, after the collapse of, the, of, of communism, right in 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 the ussr that there's this moment he's writing this encyclical in 1991 
and he says, look, okay, now that this, the wall's fallen, like, what does that mean? Does that mean like capitalism is triumphant? Is that, does that mean that's our economic system that we should be plumping for? He says, well, it depends on what you mean, right? And then he kind of describes the bad kind of capitalism, right? Like we would probably say like unfettered capitalism or, you know, industrial capitalism or laissez-faire. We'd have some like crony, cap- some qualifier, right, right. say bad kind, right? And then he says, well, if we mean by that, that like free markets are good, right? Business is important, entrepreneurship and creative work, right? Dignify the human. If that's what we mean by that word, well, of course, that's a good thing. Yeah, right? exactly. You no. Know? Um, and so, so that to me is, is, is a fundamental interest of mine. Like, yeah, bad capitalism, it's not completely gone. Right. And the way to get it completely gone is to have businesses that are good, right. Creative entrepreneurship, these things that I know you Curtis and what you're doing, I read, read your bio on this thing, what you're doing, what you've been doing, right. The kinds of things you value. Yeah. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm worried. I am a fan of those things. And the thing that I worry about is how the bigger, broader institutional um, structure right. oppose that. And what happened in the pandemic is a clear example. Yes. Oh, yeah. Is, I mean, we're on Zoom here, right? I mean, if right. you bought Zoom at the beginning of that and now and you bought like a couple shares, I mean, you're right. doing pretty good now. Thanks right? for reminding me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So... Um, they have come down in the last few months, just so you know, there was like a little, little bit of a correction, but anyway. <laughs> so my point is, is that, you know, the, the, the people that want to defend good business and entrepreneurship creative, they know that one of their enemies, right. Is not it. it one of their enemies is crony capitalism. That's right. right? Of course. It's not really capitalism, but yes. Okay. Yeah. So other, and their other enemy of course is like state encroachment, but I would add, there's another thing going on. Right. And that that's the fundamental reason right, why we're doing business is to contribute to the common good, right, that that, yes. that the individualism that often underlies entrepreneurship or whatever creativity, that is another thing that's an error. So we've got, sure, you've got big state, you've got, you know, um, crony capitalism, but then you have the kind of autonomous individualism, self-interest, not love, not care for each other, not that this product is somehow um, expressing my personality, right in a way that I care about and that that contributes to life together right um so that is also which is of course one of the famous criticisms of the bad capitalism right yeah that it's right. selfish it's greedy it's whatever and of course it can be that and it was that right you always um, have to have your 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 eyes wide open to human nature the way it is right and the fall yeah. we're fallen creatures we're sinful and the, that the sin takes different forms, right? It's, there's, it's because we're social and communal, there's sin that takes communal form and, and that will bleed into economics, of course. So that's, you always have, I think it's good that you're pointing that though you're helping kids make that distinction. I call them kids, but you know, I mean, I don't know they're adults, but they're kids. We all, we all think in decades now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. They think in decades yet. Yeah. If you don't remember nine 11, you're a kid. Okay. That's right. That's right. Um, 
Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Alex, you, uh, your energy is indefatigable. I probably <laughs> should, uh, um, say that word again, just so people know which word I was saying you are indefatigable. Exactly. <laughs> don't, don't you like, aren't you like teaching later? I am. I'm teaching in about an hour. So I got to go prep. I got to go read. Um, but I mean, the energy alone. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, drains so, me. it does drain me. I am getting old. It does drain me, but I love it. I'm so happy to be yeah. here. And I'm so happy to, to talk with you fellas. Yes, it, it was a pleasure. I'm getting I old. Yeah. I love it people, when people say I'm getting older. Really? Not me. <laughs> we got to do this again. I, mean, I hope we can do this what are again. The chances I, I'm getting younger. Yeah. But yeah, like someone said, uh, I have, I have aging parents. Oh, <laughs> what have you been doing this That's whole time profound. Since, since conception? We uh, will you can see the out. looks on my students face when I point out that they were born. <laughs> I say, What's your birthday? <laughs> well, my birthday is in you know, July or whatever. You know, so was it you that was born? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, this is in the context of abortion. This is on the yeah. context of abortion. I know. I know what you're doing. You went through the process of being born, so you existed before you were born. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like such basic stuff. <laughs> Let me guess. You have aging parents, though. You have. anyway. You, you started little and you got bigger. Yeah. Shocker. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Curtis, you have anything else? No, just uh, can't can't wait to do this again, um, man. I'm gonna, I might have to make some vacation plans. You, you guys can come stay out here whenever you want. It's an amazing community, super hospitable. Uh, any Christian brothers welcome here. So you come. Sounds, whenever. Like, sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I'm actually not jealous of you because it's a good feeling to not be jealous of you. But if I didn't like you, I would be jealous of you. But because I like you. <laughs> I'm not jealous of you. I'm so happy for you. And I'm so happy for that community that gets to have you. Yeah. Amen. It, it makes me too. So uh, we're interdependent 